We're going to start posting each podcast episode that you see on YouTube a week earlier on Patreon. So feel free to join for early access to all episodes. Plus, we're going to start doing bonus podcast episodes every week. So if you want to join Patreon, it's patreon.com slash concrete videos. Next week's episode is already posted there, so feel free to go check it out. Hello, world. Our guest today is Rich Clark. Rich is an expert in cryptocurrency and Austrian economic theory. He's also an organizer of the Bitcoin Atlanta meetup. In 2012, Rich became one of the three insurgent delegates from Georgia for Ron Paul at the Republican National Convention. This experience of seeing the sausage be made in politics made him lose faith in the idea that political action was a viable solution to advance human freedom. It was at this point Rich began to focus on Bitcoin as a possible tool for human liberation. In the following seven years, Rich became an expert in economic philosophies and the landscape of the cryptocurrency world. This podcast really opened my eyes to how money works in this country and where we're headed economically. I hope you all enjoyed as much as I did. Without further ado, please welcome the wise and wonderful Rich Clark. Thank you for coming on the show and talking to us about cryptocurrency and Bitcoin and my extreme pleasure. The internet of money, is that what it's called? Uh, something like that, yeah. So how did you get into this whole realm, this whole world of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and doing what you do? What you're you uh you run an organization in Atlanta? So yeah, I run the Bitcoin Atlanta meetup. It's the oldest cryptocurrency meetup in the metro area and um well, probably in Georgia. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've run it since it, it started. It was started by somebody else. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply before me but I've run it since about 2014 but it's been going since about 2013 so um, the way I got into it is I don't know a little bit of a long story but if, if, if you want it I can give it I got time <laughs> uh, so I uh, I was just kind of a normal guy back uh, I, I went to school I got a degree I got a degree in physics actually really and then I wow. uh but I didn't really do much with it. I, I became, I was in a rock band in college. So I did, I was doing that and I, I was an audio engineer around the Southeast. I'd do festivals and, and lots of pickup gigs and, you know, sound for bands and stuff like that. And some, some bigger shows too. Uh, but all around the Southeast, that's what I was kind of doing after college. And then, uh, one of the guys that I ran sound with, uh, Michael Gaster's his name from Savannah, Georgia. He, uh, he started talking about Ron Paul, who he was running for president in 2007 for the 2008 presidential, mm. uh, presidential race. And uh, Ron Paul, um, so I started looking at Ron Paul. I, I watched like a debate or something. Before mm-hmm. that, politically, I was just, just like, waffle, I just waffled around, didn't know anything about political philosophy or anything like that. Nothing, you know, I didn't really teach that much in school. And so 
my, my I watched one of the debates and I was like, this guy's really interesting. And so I kind of he kind of took me down a long rabbit hole um, that led me to study uh, what's called Austrian economic theory. And Austrian it, economic Austrian theory. Economic theory. Yeah. Okay. So it's uh, it's a uh, it's basically as close to the the economic theory that that underpins Bitcoin, basically. And so I was really I got really into that. As they talk a lot about sound money, like gold and silver being money, and the problems with our current monetary system, which we can go into later if you want. Uh, and and. Uh, so that's that's kind of how it started, and then it was just down the rabbit hole for that, and um, it leads you to all kinds of interesting places. And then in 2012, Ron Paul ran for president again, and I so I worked, I volunteered for his campaign, and uh, I became one of the, like the insurgent delegates, I guess, to the Republican National Convention here in Tampa in 2012. I don't know if you remember that. No, no, I don't. I wasn't paying any attention to politics <laughs> in 2012. <laughs> you weren't missing much. So, so yeah, I uh, I came down here for that, and it was an interesting experience. Both leading up to doing that, like it, it took a lot of maneuvering to become a delegate at all because they didn't want anybody who wasn't supporting the candidate at the time, which was Romney, Mitt Romney, uh, down there voting for anybody other than Mitt Romney. So hmm. but the three of us managed to get in, three Ron Paul supporters managed to get out of like 76 or something like that. So we go down, we voted for Ron Paul on the floor of the convention, and it was, you know, a, a fun, big deal, I guess. But yeah. the whole thing, you kind of see how the sausage is made, you know, when you see like uh, the inner guts of politics, and you, and you even when you're working on like the local level, and then you work up to the state level, and then you go to the national convention, I kind of got disillusioned with political action as a way to kind of advance human freedom, which is what I was kind of all about. And uh, so I was looking for alternatives, things that made sense that I could act on. And Bitcoin is the thing that I, very shortly thereafter, I knew, I've known about Bitcoin for a couple of years, but I was like, ah, what is this? I was a gold, I was a gold bug. So I was like, what is this, you know, internet scam money? Mm -hmm. I, I don't want anything to do with that. And, uh, but uh, around 2012, yeah, so August 2012, I started really looking into it, digging into it, and then I really hit the ground running early 2013, and I started you know mining Bitcoin and doing all kinds of other things. We can talk about that too later. You were mining it, mining. So it, you had yeah. computers that were building blockchains and stuff, something like that. Something yeah. like that. Yeah. Something along those lines. I had a loose understanding of it. Right. So, um, and really, the rest is kind of history after that. So that's that's sort of the path, the arc of me getting into it. I really wanted to, I really wanted, Bit, I really wanted Bitcoin to change the world, and it may still. Uh, I'm very hopeful that, you know, I think it's is, the technology is out there, and I think that it has a, it's definitely going to make an impact on the world in the future. Right. So, gave me. We were talking on the phone last, and you were explaining to me sort of like the way. Our current, like the current currency that we have now, differs from Bitcoin. When you're trying to explain to me the fundamentals of Bitcoin, right? And you were trying to explain like the difference between how like inflation works and how like the original banks they would take take money and they would they use that money to make money on loans, et cetera, et cetera. Can you just like can we just start from like the 
like the ground right and sort of like build up this sort of idea that you were explaining to me yeah sure so if you want to look into not many people know really how our monetary system works today it's all it's all magic uh and, yeah. and we and we know buzzwords like uh the, the prime rate of you know the fed sends the prime rate and and the federal reserve board chairmen they go with for Congress and talk every now and then. Um, but nobody really knows how very few people know how, like how our monetary system came to be and what it is today. So basically if you want to go way back, you know, if you want to talk about what is money, um, money scoot that mic a little bit closer to your mouth. You're, sorry, you're, you're yeah. kind of a quiet talker. So I want to make sure that we get that crispy audio. You know okay, what I mean? Sure, sure. <laughs> so, um, so you, you have to, the first question you ask is what is money, right? Right. It's and the definition is it's a medium of exchange. So it's you know in the early days of economic activity, you'd have barter. You know, so you want to trade. You 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 want you have eggs, but you want uh, some shoes. So you you have you, you got to find a shoe smith, a cobbler, whatever you call him, mm. to that wants eggs. And so he'll make you some shoes and you give some eggs and you're good to go. You make eggs, he makes shoes. And, but what if you can't find one that makes eggs or that makes shoes, you know, that wants eggs. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so that's when this whole idea of like a common medium of exchange that people could buy things with came forth and zillions of things have been used as money over the eons. So, uh, cows, she- seashells, you know, you name it. And right. And of course, the most predominant one in sort of the modern era, uh, well, the, the ancient world and the modern era was gold, gold and silver. And the reasons that that gold became such good money weren't because somebody decreed, hey, this is good money, let's use it. It's because gold has some emergent qualities that the market discovered made it a very good medium of exchange. And the sort of fundamental thing, those emergent qualities that people talk about, like monetary theorists talk about, are um, things like uh, portability. How portable is it? So, you know, you can you can use cows for trade, but if you want to trade your cows for something, you have to f- get them, you know, from here to there. It's mm-hmm. not easy to move a cow around. So portability, uh, durability. Um, so a cow also... Uh, you know, well, you know, they live for a while. They they don't they won't live for hundreds of years or, or whatever. And if mm-hmm. they, they can get hurt and and die and get sick, so they're not quite as durable. You know, dry goods like grain and rice and have been used as currency too. And in the ancient world, mm-hmm. those also maybe have a shelf life of a certain amount of time, so they're not as durable as something like gold, mm-hmm. which gold is you know you can just sit it in a vault for a thousand years and it'll still be there. Right. Um, so we've got portability, durability, there's this, uh, divisibility. So another thing like a cow, like, you know, Hey, I want to buy this thing from you. How much is it? You know, half, half a cow. Right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, well, you can't, I it's can't a little bit difficult. Yeah. Half a cow. Right. So, but you can take a gold piece and you can cut it in half or give them, you know, and, and so divisibility is a big, um, thing that makes, you know, <clears throat> something good money. There's something called fungibility, which we'll probably come back to later. It's kind of a weird word, but mm-hmm. what it basically means is one is like the other. So if you take an ounce of gold, one ounce of gold, um, 
it's like any other ounce of gold, you know, whereas, you know, different cows can be worth widely huge difference of money, amounts of money because they, mm. they can have different qualities that make them age desirable. of them or whatever. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's size breeders right. that do all kinds of things, you know, different things and make different cows worth all kinds of different amounts of money for different mm. purposes. So, but you know, an ounce of gold, um, and it's another thing, uniformity of the money. So, um, uniformity, fungibility, it's kind of the same thing, but yeah, one is like the other. So if you deposit an ounce of gold, you know, at a bank or something, then you're not going to get that exact ounce of gold back. You know, they're going to put it in the vault. And then when you come say, Hey, I want an ounce of gold, you're going to get, you know, a different ounce of gold, but it's the same value. So you don't, you don't care. You're like, okay, yeah, it's not like the other. So yeah, portability, divisibility, or portability, durability, fungibility. Uh, let's see what was the other one. So the other, but divisibility was divisibility, that one. That's yeah. one. So you can divide it up. Right. And then there's another one that they talk about, which is kind of like intrinsic value. Mm-hmm. That's a that's an interesting one with Bitcoin. But basically, that means that one of the like with the market money, like gold, it has some value. Like people use it for something, like in in like jewelry. Or in our modern world, you can use it for electronics. It has some, like, intrinsic value to it. Okay. Um, and Bitcoin does have intrinsic value, but it's not in the sense that we traditionally would talk about. So, <coughs> going way back, that's why gold emerged as money. Oh, scarcity is another one. Scarcity, right. Yeah. So, um, and that's kind of like, uh, some. it's kind of like you have to find a, a middle ground. Because some things are too scarce, like platinum and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And so nobody can really get their hands on it, so it's it's not good money. And then if things are too plentiful, um, it doesn't have enough value to make large purchases. You know, you like you have to get a wheelbarrow full of uh, clamshells or mm-hmm. corn or whatever. So. Right. So gold has historically kind of hit that medium place where it's it's scarce enough, but it's um, but it's not so scarce that people can't get it. You know. Mm-hmm. So um, so those are the big ones that make uh for sound money. So in the um so that's how gold kind of emerged as the the standard money throughout the world really. Um basically from the biblical times till pretty recently. Mhm. Um the now how is our money now like currently like how is our the dollar bills right. that we buy stuff with how is that related or tied at all to gold? Well, it's not so at all. So the, and the, the path to that is pretty, but wasn't it supposed to be originally? It was originally. Okay. So back in the, I guess to go back to what we were kind of talking about with like the goldsmiths and whatnot, Mm. the, the origins of banking as we know it today started with, you know, you'd have gold and you'd want to own gold to buy things, but you'd have to store it and keep it safe. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that was a problem. And so what they would do is the goldsmiths who, you know, would make things out of gold, like jewelry and stuff, they would already, they would have like 24-7 armed guards or something (laughs) at their place in a vault or something to keep them safe. So people would say, okay, you know what? This guy is really good at keeping gold safe. So I'm going to see if he'll keep my gold safe for me and they, and, and for a fee. And, and the goldsmiths are like, yeah, this sounds like a great idea. I already have the vault. It's got plenty of room. So Mm -hmm. I'll. I'll just add yours to it, and yeah, you pay me a fee. 
And what they would get in return would be like a receipt, basically, that says, hey, you own this much gold uh, at my vault. And, and you can come in and claim it any time. Like a monetary note. Yeah. So um, over time, what ended up happening is those notes, instead of somebody saying, ooh, I really want this, let me run down to, to, to the goldsmith, get my gold, and I'll be back, and I'll pay you. What sort of ended up happening over uh, a period of time is people would, they would allow you to, to sign your rights to the gold away. It's kind of like the precursor of what we'd know as like a checkbook today. Mm-hmm. You, you could sign the note, you know, endorse the note, and say, okay, I'm endorsing this over to this guy. And so if he comes to you and wants gold, he can get it. So then you pay him with the note instead of the gold. You pay, mm-hmm. you, you pay whoever you're buying, uh, whatever you buy back then. Uh, a horse. A, a horse. <laughs> yeah, some, some armor, a yeah. sword. I don't know. <laughs> so uh, you, you do that, and, um, and then he could go reclaim it. And then eventually what happened is they were just bearer notes, meaning whoever's holding this, uh, they don't need to sign anything. They just show up, and they present it, and they can, they can, they can redeem it. And so the, these started to circulate throughout the economy, and there'd be different goldsmiths who would have different notes. But mm-hmm. basically, they started they acted as money because they were redeemable for mm-hmm. for gold, but they were more portable and and easier to store because they're just paper. So the goldsmiths kind of figured out that only you know there's only you know once they this became like a big part of their business, only like fifteen percent or ten percent of their patrons would come in on any given week or month to withdraw their gold. So they had all this gold that just kind of sat there. Why not make money with it while it's sitting there? And um, so at first it started where they, they would have an agreement with the gold holder. Like if somebody had a lot of gold there, they'd say, hey, how about we loan this gold out and we can earn interest? And then we'll split the interest, you know? And the guy would say, yeah, that sounds great. And so they'd do that. And... um but then eventually the banksters even, you know, especially for like small depositors, they would, they would cut out that portion of it. They would just say, okay, you, you can leave it here. And maybe that, maybe they don't have a fee for you leaving it there. Maybe they'll do it for free, but they're going to be loaning it out and making interest on it. So that's how, so they started in addition to their storage fees, they'd, or maybe in, in place of their storage fees, they'd start um, loaning the gold out. Or loaning the, the notes out for the gold. Well, or, or were they, lo- they weren't loaning the actual so, gold. So, no, they would loan notes for the gold, right? Right. So they'd, they'd leave the gold safe in the vault, and they'd issue right. the notes because the notes were circulating like currency. So that would allow them to make money on the, the, the reserves in their vaults. What then came next was a pretty brilliant idea, which is, hey, you know, again, nobody comes in for all of this at once, and who's to really know uh, if we put more notes out there mm-hmm. than we actually have gold in our vaults? So let's say if they had 100 ounces of gold in their vaults, maybe they'd give a loan. And instead of, uh, in, you know, so then they'd say they have 85% of their gold they're leaving. They're leaving. So 85 ounces of gold they're leaving for loans. So say if they've already loaned out those 85 uh, ounces of gold or the paper backing it. Mm-hmm. But somebody comes to them and they still they want a loan too. And they say, well, you know what? Nobody's going to notice if there's 10 more ounces of gold paper, you know, receipts floating out there. Um, so I'm going to loan this guy these receipts and he'll pay me back interest. Mm-hmm. And so 
that would be that would that's called fractional reserve banking. Is what fractional that's reserve fractional banking. Fractional reserve banking. Okay. So basically, the amount of uh, notes you have out there, so so liabilities, right? The amount of notes you have to repay outweighs what you actually have in the bank. Okay. As long as everybody doesn't show up at once, it's not a problem, and you can make money uh, on on the notes that have nothing back in them. And so this kind of became a pretty addictive sort of drug because you can literally, you can literally just make money out of nothing. You can make interest on holdings you don't even have. Um, so it's at first it started you're using other people's money to make money, right? The, other people's deposits to make money, which was great. But then it just kind of went to this next level where you can, based on your reputation, you can and your notes circulating in the economy, you can just push them out there and people will still circulate them. And so, mm. you know, bankers could have had in having the past inflated, you know, their to double or triple the amount of notes they'd have on, on based that. on the gold they would have in the bank. Yeah. And what would happen is they, then you'd get what's called bank runs, which people may have heard of bank runs, bank runs. Okay. So basically if the word gets out that there's not that they have, that they're a, a dishonest banker or whatever and they've put out way more notes way more paper than they have backing it what are people going to do they're going to go and they're going to be like well i'm not going to be i'm not going to get left holding the bag if they don't have the gold i'm going to go get mine right now and they show up and they they want the gold and and then they and then if, then eventually they run out and then you still have a line out the door of people with the receipts and they collapse and fail right and right which is kind of a good thing because it was a sort of free market way to keep these guys from going crazy with this whole scheme. Mm-hmm. So, so there was always this threat of bank runs. Um, what we have now is like that system on crazy steroids, like uh, like like bigger than Arnold was at his peak, <laughs> you know. Um, so the Federal Reserve, you know. During the history of the United States, um, like when the United States was formed as the Articles of Confederation, uh, so it was just like separate states in like this loose confederation. And it was like that for about 10 years after the Revolutionary War. So each state kind of, you know, the history of how governments learn to, to issue paper currency and stuff is a little convoluted too, but the sort of moral of the story is that the states, there was hyperinflation in a lot of the states because when, and we can talk about that a little bit later, inflation and how it affects us. But what they kind of learned, the founders learned through experience was that um, really this whole government printing money thing didn't really work that well. And so in the U.S. Constitution, it's actually in there that only gold and silver shall be money in the United States of America. Mm. And so that that was the case for for a while we had two central banks one was called i think the bank of the united states it was founded in like 1800 or something like that and then it its charter ran out and then andrew jackson there was a second bank in the united states that was chartered as well and andrew jackson um quashed that one it's something he's kind of famous for it's kind of a crazy story um and then we didn't ha- really have a central bank um, until 1913. And actually, I just went to a conference on Jekyll Island last week. 
um, which is an island off the coast of Georgia. It's a little barrier island. It's, I think, actually the smallest one. It used to be a, uh, a retreat that J.P. Morgan owned in the 1800s. It was the Jekyll Island Club. And there's this book that everybody should read uh, by a guy named J. Edward Griffin called The Creature from Jekyll Island. And it's basically like the comprehensive history of the founding of our Federal Reserve. Um, hmm. And it was founded... Uh, the reason it's called the creature from Jekyll Island is that it was um, like they, they, they got together a cabal of guys, some senators and some big bankers got together on Jekyll Island in 1910. And they basically drafted what would become the federal reserve act that created the federal reserve bank, which is wow. our, the fed. We know it is the fed. So that's why you guys so, did your conference there. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> there was a conference there. Actually, yeah. There was a conference there over the weekend. It's kind of, um, you know, fun thing to yeah to go and and there if you go to the Jekyll Island Club, there's a Federal Reserve room and there's a plaque that says in this room, the Federal Reserve was you know drafted or wow. drafted. At the time though, it was a big secret mm-hmm. because they didn't want anybody to know who was getting together and why and where mm-hmm. um, because it would have gotten people suspicious. But bottom line is, uh, with the creation of the Federal Reserve, it allowed. It allowed the um, – with any central bank, England pretty much invented central banking. Um, they had the Bank of England. It was like the first central bank. Um, and, and the Federal Reserve is pretty much a copycat of that. And what it allows the government to do is um, this whole fractional reserve system. So, you know, the government has a certain amount of money and that the Federal Reserve will hold that money, like the gold, literally gold. Um there's literally gold in the Federal Reserve? Well, there's debate about that, too. But oh. there definitely has been in the past. So, uh, you know, Fort Knox is 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 where the Treasury holds supposedly holds a lot of its gold. And then also the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, I think, has a big vault. There's supposed to be a lot of gold in there, too. So um, so you have this, this gold. Before 1913, only gold and silver was money in the United States. Um, so we had silver coins. So the quarter, the nickel, the dime... Well, not the nickel. The nickel is made of nickel. But uh, this, uh, so the, the the nickel, sorry, the the dime and the quarter, the half dollar, the dollar were all silver coins, pure silver. Well, like ninety percent silver, I believe. And then um, we had uh, what was called the Morgan dollars, which were these these big uh, gold. Um, I, they're big gold pieces, mm-hmm. and these actually circulated as money. We also had banknotes that circulated and, and stuff like that, too, um, before the Federal Reserve. But when the Federal Reserve was founded, what we had is this this ability of the government to... The way the government funds itself is with taxes, you know, up to that point, and debt. So the government issues bonds. I'm sorry, I know this is like... Like I'm like I feel like this is like the feeding you with the water hose here. No, so no, it's okay. Over, no, it's skipping okay. Skipping over, skipping over like so much stuff. No, it's good. But the government makes money, uh, uh, raises money with bonds, which is basically debt. Okay. So people buy the bonds, like you know, during the war, you heard about like World War Two. Buy your war bonds to help pay for the war and stuff like that. Okay. Um. And so they'd sell them to private entities, basically. And so people would buy the bonds, and they would yield a return. That was a way the government could raise money for projects. And okay. Stuff like that. Well, what the Federal Reserve can do is they can buy bonds as well. Uh-huh. Uh, so they're like a bank, 
but they're chartered by the they're chartered by the Congress actually. So they're like a uh, like a hybrid sort of organization. So it's it's a private bank, but it's chartered by Congress. So they have special privileges, and um, they can buy the government's debt. And this is kind of getting to how how it works today. But when they buy the government's debt, they they issue the government dollars for that debt, right? But they literally just print the money for that debt to the government. Like they, so they say, okay, thank you, government, for oh, we'll buy a billion dollars in treasury bonds from you, sure. And then they'll send the U.S. Treasury a billion U.S. dollars, a billion Federal Reserve notes. They're called Federal Reserve notes. Mm-hmm. Those Federal Reserve notes are, they literally just print them. Well, these days they don't even print them. They just, it's just like a data, data entry. Hmm. So, um, so the, kind of the brass tax is that they, that when the government needs money, so let's just use like, you want to know about today's money. Um, when the government needs money for stimulus checks. Right. For, okay. For people. Right. They don't say, okay, how much taxes did we raise this year? You know, can we, can we afford this? How much money did they spend on this, on the stimulus checks this year? Something no in the idea. trillions? Yeah. Well, it was like, yeah, it's like a trillion or $2 trillion. Or something right. Like that. So when um, when they do that, they don't sit there and say, okay, how can, you know, how many, let's take from, we're going to, we can't afford this. We're going to take from this, you know, entity. We're going to cut the FDA budget here. We're going to, we got to make this happen. No, they don't do that. They don't look at the tax revenues. They don't care. All they do is they go to the Federal Reserve and they say, hey, we need $2 trillion. Okay. And the Federal Reserve says, okay, well, start printing your treasury bills you know, your bonds that we're going to buy and print $2 trillion of them. We'll buy $2 trillion worth of bonds and then we'll give you $2 trillion. And it's literally just comes out of So now the government nowhere. just owns, o- owes them $2 trillion. Yes. In okay. the future. And Which, they pay interest on that to, to the federal reserve. Um, so that's, uh, so basically, uh, there really is, and ever since 1971, and I can talk about that in a second, there is no gold backing for the U.S. dollar at all, period, okay. in the story. It's not backed by anything. It's bad. It's backed by the faith in the military, essentially, of the United States of America, um, is all that's backing the U.S. dollar. How how does that make sense? Backed by the military? Well, I mean, yeah. If how, you, how? Explain that. <laughs> well, uh, all right, let me go back a little ways. So... After World War II, there's a, uh, a state of affairs in the world where the United States actually held something like 60% of the world's gold mm-hmm. because, you know, we, we were this huge manufacturing powerhouse mm-hmm. and we manufactured so much of like the war materials and, and so, so many countries were sending us their gold for safekeeping one, uh, but also um, mostly just for just commerce. And so the United States had this huge stock of gold and the kind of, I guess, world elites, if you will, didn't like this sort of imbalance. And so they all met at Bretton Woods, which is a place in New Jersey, I think. And they came up with this thing called the Bretton Woods Agreement. And what that said is that it made the U.S. dollar, like, essentially the world reserve currency. And the reason it was the world reserve currency is because it was, the U.S. dollar would be redeemable for gold at $35 an ounce. It pegged gold at $35 an ounce. Okay. 
for foreign countries. So foreign countries could come if they had dollars, they could retrieve their, they could use their dollars and and trade them from gold. So that caused a few things to happen. Foreign governments would started hoarding dollars and and, and getting dollars because it was the one currency that was backed by gold still. Mm-hmm. And um. And so this Bretton Woods kind of state of affairs, and and by the way, U.S. citizens weren't allowed to own gold at this time, so <laughs> it was it was illegal. weren't allowed to own, go, no. own gold. Okay. Yeah, F- F- FDR in 1933 banned gold. Um, uh, nobody right. could hold gold. They said that uh, what was the slogan? It was something like uh, they blamed people who hoarded gold for the economics, mm-hmm. not the economy, not turning around. They're like because they were. They would hoard it. They were saying, oh, they're hoarding it, so it's not getting out in the economy. So they're Choking the economy or Choking something. the economy, yeah. right. And so they said, you better give it up. Yeah. So there was like a – you could have like some tiny amount, like two ounces or something like that or something of gold. But the fines were crazy. Mm-hmm. Like uh, it was like $10,000 fine. And in 1933, I think that's like a quarter of a million dollars now. So – and then people got put in jail for it too. Mm-hmm. Not very many, but – some if they were found to have been hoarding more gold. So U.S. citizens weren't allowed to own gold, but it was but U.S. dollars were redeemable for gold from foreign countries. So these foreign countries, um, what they started doing is a lot of them started redeeming their gold. In the 60s, they, they redeemed their dollars for gold. And so sure enough, the gold was flowing out of the U.S. to these other countries at, right. a, at a rapid rate, okay. actually, because the U.S. had produced a lot more the U.S. government had produced a lot more dollars than it had gold in the bank, just like the old bankers of old time, you know, the goldsmiths did. There's more dollars in circulation than there were uh, the gold in the Fort Knox. You know? So you're saying like the U.S. military is the only thing that's going to stop other countries from coming and taking all of our well, gold? I'll, 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 uh, okay, <laughs> let me get to that. Okay. I haven't forgotten that original question. Okay. I'm just trying to get to... We're at. So uh, in 1971, Richard Nixon, basically the outflow of gold was happening so fast that um, that we were going to run out, essentially, if we kept exchanging the dollars for gold mm-hmm. with the foreign countries. So Richard Nixon closed the gold window in, in 1971. He ba- it was an executive order, and he basically said, Bretton Woods agreement is done. And the U.S. dollar is no longer redeemable for gold. What they had done at that point is Henry Kissinger, who was his, uh, I think, Secretary of State, had worked out um, a bunch of deals with, like, the the Saudi sheikhs and princes and whatever and kings. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the Middle East, that basically we would industrialize their economies and we would come in and because we figured out they had a ton of oil and we'd go in and we'd uh we'd build up their countries build up their oil industries but uh you know opec would only accept dollars for oil so at the same time we closed the gold window this deal this deal had was just happening and just happened where if you wanted oil you had to pay for it in dollars so one would think that if we were saying, okay, you can't get any more gold, people would lose confidence in the dollar and like a dollar's value would collapse. But because they had this other system in the works, they would, 
it basically became like the petrodollar. So so the, the, the countries could still hold dollars and be like, okay, but well, these are still useful because I still need these to buy oil. I still have to buy. And that's how it is to this very day. So when I say it's backed by the U.S. military, what I mean is there's uh, there have been several countries, like Iran is the one that pops out most in my mind, who have tried to set up, because Iran has a ton of oil, they've tried to set up like uh, oil uh, exchanges where they would sec- accept something other than dollars, U.S. dollars. So they'd set euros or Chinese yuan, something like that. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that has a lot to do with a lot of the tensions that we have with Iran is that they, I mean, there's other things too. Uh, mm. we, we've caused a lot of problems over there and um, in the past. Um, but basically, if anybody threatens this sort of dollar hegemony on oil, they will get a military response, most likely, of some kind. And so in that respect, the U.S. military does sort of back the the dollar, like the force of the U.S. military, um, because if anybody truly threatens the uh, the sort of global world reserve status of U.S. dollar, yeah, it, like if any nation state does, they could receive mm-hmm. retribution. But... Basically, that's what government is. It's it's government in general is, you know, the ability to force somebody to do something. Okay. Like they, like, in my opinion, like they, they, uh, it's the monopoly on the use of force. Basically, is what a government is like in, in a right. certain jurisdiction. Okay. You know, legal, mm-hmm. le- like the legal monopoly on it. Mm-hmm. Like, of course, people use force all the time and mm-hmm. commit crimes and stuff, but they can't legally do it. Okay, so how does Bitcoin solve this? Okay. Solve this problem. And before actually before you do that, how do you explain to people like dummies out there like me what Bitcoin is? If somebody has no clue, how do you explain it? Right. So Bitcoin is a new sort of evolution in uh, like monetary technology and I guess the sort of like elevator pitch is is it's it's an uncensorable, uh, unconfiscatable, uh, fixed supply, monetary, easily transferable, transmittable monetary unit. Okay, so it there's a lot of like if you exist in the world we live in today, like there's capital controls that keep you from moving your capital from place to place there uh, there's tons uh, of middlemen tons of middlemen yes it also cuts out the middleman mm-hmm. uh, in the early days of bitcoin we had like an easy pitch and that was hey check it out i can send you money between our phones because bitcoin kind of had that was sort of revolutionary in like 2009 but now everybody does that with like cash app and stuff so that's right. not as cool but <laughs> What makes Bitcoin different, and Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies different, is that um, the well. Let me talk about what happens when the government or banks or whatever, in you know, basically issue the do the fraction reserve scheme, issue yeah. all the money. What we see is so like uh, I'm a I'm a realtor up in Atlanta, is you know, um, and I so. Over the last six months, we've seen housing prices go up, like quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And are they still going up? 
Uh, they're starting to level off a little bit. Okay. But they're going up. And I think this is a phenomenon in a lot of places. Um, some would say, so, I mean, part of that is because there's low supply. You know, supply and demand is like kind of the whole market. A lot of people were kind of like not wanting to move because they, COVID and stuff like that. So like there were fewer houses on the market than historically there would have been. And so that helps drive prices up. But also it is, it's, you know, the government gave all these loans to people like the PPP loans. They did the stimulus packages. There's people on unemployment making, you know, like reasonable amounts of money, actually like $1,200 a week sometimes when it was kind of at its height. And, um, you know, when you, this money is just injected into the economy. Like it didn't come from tax revenues. It came from that sort of mechanism I was telling you about where the federal reserve buys the debt and just creates the money. Mm-hmm. But the economy is still the economy. It's still the same as it was the day before they sent these checks out. There's still the same amount of stuff. Yeah. It's still the same amount of houses. There's still the same amount of food. It's still the same, you know, the economy hasn't grown uh, overnight to, uh, you know, to match whatever percentage <coughs> increase the, the supply of money was. So what you end up having is you have these, you have more and more dollars chasing after the same amount of goods and services. And so what you see happening, like for instance, real estate is you say, okay, my, my client really likes this house. Let's make an offer. I call the listing agent. Oh, well, we, sorry, we already have 10 offers on this house. So if you want, if you want it, um, you know, you, you need gotta to pay go, more. You need to go over list price. So, okay, well, we'll go over list price and we'll go over and then we'll, Hey, we'll put an escalation clause in, which basically says we'll go a thousand dollars more than the highest bidder, you know, wow, stuff like that. Yeah. To try and get the house. And so what happens is the price gets bid up. Right. And, uh, and part of that is because there's more of these dollars in the system and also, you know, interest rates are low, um, which is another kind of aspect of inflation. Mm -hmm. Um, so, all these dollars are chasing after the same amount of assets we have is price inflation, which means the prices of everything goes up. And so when you magnify this effect over, you know, the federal reserve has been around for 107 years since 1913. When you, when you magnify that out over a hundred years of this sort of gradual debasement of the money, the dollar is worth a fraction of 1% of what it was when the federal reserve was started. So you have to ask yourself, where did that money go? Um, like, where did that purchasing power go? Like, who got it? Mm-hmm. And the answer is, it goes to the people who who get the money first. So if it's called the Cantillion effect, if you want to Google it. Can, but can, what, can, it's, can't somebody say it Cantillon, but Cantillion? Cantillion effect. Yeah, okay. Um, basically, the... F- the first person that gets that new money, um, they can go out and spend it in the world at the same prices as things were yesterday before the market has had a chance to realize that, Hey, there's all this new money in the world. Um, so, you know, where are we going to, uh, so they get to purchase it at, at sort of a lower price than everybody else. So like say a month later, if the money supply is increased by 10%, what that will mean is in a month, or so once the market's kind of worked this out, mm-hmm. everything will cost 10% more. So the guy that bought the item for 10% less with that money when he first got it 
has essentially, you know, since he, since the money was just made out of thin air for him, he 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 stole ten percent of the purchasing power of everybody in the economy by injecting that new currency into the right. Economy. So with Bitcoin, one of the key uh, sort of founding principles of Bitcoin is it has a fixed supply. So it, it's 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 emitted gradually over time through a process called mining. Um, but at some point it tapers off to zero that are emitted and, and the total amount that will ever exist is 21 million bitcoins. But how, how is it possible? How can you cut it off? So at one point miners won't be able to make any money on it. Well, the miners also make money on transaction fees. Okay. So when people want to make a transaction, they, um, they pay what's called a minor fee in Bitcoin and the fee, it's just like a market. So if the Bitcoin's network's kind of busy, the fees can go up. If it's not really that busy, it goes down. But the idea is that I think the last Bitcoins will be emitted in like 2130. And so once that happens, the hope is that there'll be so many people using Bitcoin and there'll be so many transactions and it will have scaled to meet the demands of the economy that, yeah, the miners can exist easily off of uh, those transactions. Okay. Um, but the way that it's done is uh, it's code, hard-coded into the Bitcoin code that um, the the Bitcoin miners, which basically they are uh, you know people who own a computer. In the early days, it was any computer. Um, now you got to buy these like $2,000 processors, right? <laughs> yeah, or something like that. So just a brief thing about mining and what it is because it's a big part of right. how Bitcoin it's works. It's super complicated to understand. It's not super complicated, but... Um, it is, I mean, somewhat technical. So the the example I give is that um, if you imagine uh, these computers, every ten minutes, well, on average ten minutes, they're they're given a new cryptographic puzzle to solve, and it's I think of it like a needle in a haystack. So they start they they start they have to they have to find the needle in the hay, in this cryptographic haystack. It's basically like. Um, like if you have an email password mm-hmm. and somebody wants to figure it out, uh, if they don't know you well enough to like social engineer you or something, they can try what's called brute forcing it, which is basically like, well, I'll try this word. That didn't work. Okay, I'll try that word. Okay, maybe if I tweak it a little bit here. And people can code computers to do this and brute force your passwords. Mm-hmm. And so it just takes a certain amount of time to, to do that. And then eventually they'll guess right. And if you don't have any protections in case in, in place, you'll you'll have access to your stuff. And so okay. basically these these computers are trying to brute force this puzzle. And it's like looking for a needle in a haystack. And so the first computer that finds the needle broadcasts, hey, I found it, to the network. And then the rest of the network looks at the needle. And based on the last um, needle that was found, they can they can prove that that this needle is is the legitimate needle. It's the next, it's the next block in the blockchain. They found they've solved the puzzle, and um, and then that miner gets a reward for finding that needle. And he also gets he gets a monetary reward, and he also gets the ability to write all the transactions that have happened in that last ten minutes. So if people are like, hey, I want to send you some Bitcoin, and the other guy says, I want to send you some Bitcoin. Those transactions are all put out there, and 
um, and they, um, and then the miner will who finds the needle will will sweep up those transactions and, and then earn the fees off those transactions and then earn the fees off those transactions as well, and then he'll encode them into that 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 needle allows well, it's more like a key it allows him to write to the Bitcoin blockchain, okay, and that 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 um, and then once he does that he gets uh, a block reward which is the the that's how Bitcoin is created. Um, so it so started he gets off, a Bitcoin yeah, for that. He gets some Bitcoin for that. It's to incentivize people to to uh, participate in the network and and validate the transactions. It started off at fifty Bitcoin, and then every four years it's hard coded that it cuts in half. Who created the first fifty bitcoins? That was be the anonymous founder Nakamoto. Or group, uh, yes, or group of founders. Satoshi. Is that Satoshi Nakamoto, okay. right? Um, Nobody to this day really knows who he was, if it was a lone person acting or a group of individuals, where they come from, who, you know, mm-hmm. there's people who have speculated certain things, people who have um, found, um, like, uh, evidence to try and figure out where he may have lived or whatever, like, based on when he did his posts, people think that he probably lived in the East Coast of the United States, stuff like that. But, hmm. he, but Or he could have just been clever and every time he posted, posted at a certain time, it would make him look like somewhere else. Or it could have been multiple people. But yeah. Where did he, po- what did, where did he post stuff? It started off uh, in a mailing list called the, Cypher, the Cypherpunks uh, okay, mailing yeah, list. Right. Which was formed in like, I think the mid nineties, a bunch of nerds in uh, California, San Francisco started doing a little meetup at a, at one of the guy's headquarters. What was his name? Uh, Eric Hughes, I think. And Eric Hughes wrote the, uh, cypherpunk manifesto, which you can look up. It's just (laughs) like a paragraph. Um, and then, uh, they had a mailing list and, uh, these guys had been trying for, they were basically a bunch of guys that really concerned with privacy. And the, the cypherpunk manifesto basically says that privacy is, is key to free society in this modern era, like cryptographic uh, privacy. Mm -hmm. And along with those kind of ideas also come a lot of guys who are interested in sound money and they know about how the federal reserve works and how it basically robs savers of their money, you know, um, over the course of generations. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they, they worked on this whole idea of cryptocurrency. And the nearest thing to it was Hashcash, which I think was Nick Sabo's project. Um, Hashcash was a way to protect you from email spam by um, basically it would, it would make you do a little computational work. He invented proof of work basically, which is what, mm-hmm. what the minor, the mining algorithm sort of is for Bitcoin. Um, basically said so you have to do a little computer computational work to send an email. That way, if somebody couldn't just send out a zillion emails as spam to somebody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that was like 90, I don't know, it was like 2000 something, 2003 or four. He came out with that. And then Satoshi Makamoto just basically came out of the blue. Like, I just started posting in this thing and, and they dropped the, the white paper for Bitcoin and this thing. And everybody was kind of like, well, this is really interesting. 
And what Nakamoto had done is he just basically he'd taken a lot of the stuff that the cypherpunks had learned and figured out and just kind of put them together nicely into this nice package and hmm. and coded it up and and launched it. And so he was the one that, to answer your question, uh, he or she, whatever, uh, was the one that mined the first blocks of Bitcoin. And the first transaction... Mined the first blocks of... It's called the Genesis block. It's the first the block The Genesis of block? Yeah, the first okay. block of information. It was empty because there were no transactions. Right. It didn't even exist, right? Nothing right. was there. Nothing was there. But it did reward him with 50 Bitcoins to his to his Bitcoin wallet, you know, that he could create it. So, and he actually... Uh, I think he he ran it as kind of a test net for a while. Uh, he did send some Bitcoin to Hal Finney, who's now dead. Um, he was another cypherpunk contributor. Um, that was, I think, the first Bitcoin transaction where he sent, you know, he's like, okay, well, download the software. The software creates what's known as a wallet file, and I'll send you some. And it worked. But it's another kind of breadcrumb is they, they think that Nakamoto may have worked in some kind of lab where he had access to a bunch of computers because he actually had a, you could he actually had a, a whole bunch of computers that were mining in the beginning that hmm. he was testing with. Like it was something like thirty or forty computers, and they were all kind of the same. Uh, they all kind of did blocks at about the same time, um, so they it took them about the ma- same time to find the needle. So they figured they're probably about the same type of computer. But that's kind of a rabbit hole. Uh, yeah, sorry, for I sure. Apologize. But but that's that's who mined the first bitcoins. Um, so okay. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like I'm jumping around a lot. And I yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> it's super. It's super interesting. Now, there's also multiple different types of bit. Like there's Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Then there's things like Ethereum. Right. How are these things different? Are these just people like t- like t- finding opportunities in this whole Bitcoin craze? To well, Bitcoin's an open source open source project. So that means that anybody can go read the code. It's not like some secret, you know. Right. So, like, one of the first altcoins that I knew about was one called Litecoin. Altcoin, that's yeah, the term. Yeah, okay. Altcoin, right. They're yes. alternate, alternate versions alternate, of Bitcoin. Yeah. Okay. And it literally was just a, an alternate version of Bitcoin. It was a, a word-for-word, basically, copy-paste of Bitcoin. The mm. only thing that he changed in the code, a guy named Charlie Lee, the only thing that he changed was uh, he changed the block time. And that so, Bitcoin, uh, the way that it works, that's so interesting. It, it took. Uh, have you ever heard of BitTorrent? Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's basically like a decentralized file sharing. Right. Like so, you so want to like, download a movie or something. Right. Or so 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 basically, hundreds of people will have this movie on their computers, right? Okay. And um, and and then you say, hey, I want to download that too, and so you mm. get a little file, and then it, and then. That it goes out and looks, says, okay, who has this? Okay, mm-hmm. this guy has it, that guy has it, that guy has it, that guy has it. I'm going to download from him, him, him. And you download a little bit from each peer, right? But there's no, like, the reason it works is because there's no, uh, and the reason it hasn't been taken down by the authorities is there's no central, uh, like, BitTorrent company that you can sue, raid, uh, fine, take down otherwise. Nobody right? owns BitTorrent? No. Not, no, no, nobody owns Bitcoin. Okay. So it's just a program just a that de- exists. It's just a decentralized protocol. Okay. And, and people can, uh, now there's, and there's, and it's open source. So a lot of people have developed different um, apps and stuff that, that work with Bitcoin and mm-hmm. they talk to the network, but, but yeah, that's how. What about websites like Pirate Bay or the, those so types of websites? The thing is, those are just, 
repositories for the for the the key files that let you know that 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 they're like little tags that basically say okay uh this movie this is like say this or let's say something legal like a like a like a like an open, like a public domain book or something. You want to download it. Yeah. It's in the public domain. There's cause there's plenty of legal content available, mm-hmm. of course, on BitTorrent as well. Um, you'll download this. You'll say, okay, I'm going to search something like the pirate Bay and find, uh, Moby Dick. Okay. I want to read it. I want to read how to get the e-reader version of Moby Dick and it'll come up and it'll show several files and it'll, it'll say, okay, this, this file has, 15 people that also have it and this or this file has one this one's kind of dead there's nobody that like it, we know about it but nobody out there is hosting it mm-hmm. and so you click on that file and all that file is is just like meta, basically metadata about about that file and then you load that into your your BitTorrent software and then it goes out and looks for who else has it but private bay, private bay doesn't host anything aside from just those basically the metadata for those torrent files. So okay. the only thing you download from the pirate bay is like a tiny, like three kilobyte file. That so just it's just like, it's like a about. portal to these other files that you can download. Right. It's basically like a, it's basically like you have your library cards and you well, not anymore. <laughs> when I was growing up, you had library, you know, you had the, the Dewey decimal system, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you'd have your card catalogs and then you'd, you'd say, okay, when uh, I need to, the author's name starts with, you know, an, an L. So you open up the L drawer and you look, oh, here it is. And then you go to the stacks and you find it. So all that Pirate Bay is, is just okay the card catalog. Oh, okay. That makes You're sense. You're not actually downloading. So unlike Napster, so Napster actually hosted the stuff. Napster started, you know, Napster was like 1990, whatever, mm-hmm. eight, nine. Mm-hmm. And they got, they were a company though. And they, they ran this file sharing thing and they got, sued out of existence basically by the record companies and everybody. So, so Bitcoin, right. Took this idea of a decentralized platform, uh, like BitTorrent where it's just one node connecting to another in like a spider web, but there's no central point of failure. Like all you have to do to run a Bitcoin node is just open up the software and bam, you're part of the network. So even if somebody wanted to take down the Bitcoin network, right, they would have to, They'd have to find every computer that's running it in the world and like smash that computer. They'd have to go into space, I think, at this point because I think there's Bitcoin nodes running in orbit, and and kill those. When you say node, you mean those computers that it's are just, mining? It's just a computer. It doesn't even have to. It doesn't even necessarily have to be mining okay. anymore. Okay. Um, in the beginning, all nodes were pretty much miners. Okay. But we'll get to the sort of. We can get to the. Uh, let's shelve that for a second. The arms race. Yeah, the arms okay. race in mining. Right. That's kind of a fun thing to talk about. But uh, anyhow, it, it's it's an impo- it's a very durable network because it's it has no central point of failure um, as a protocol. So um, it took that. So Satoshi Nakamoto took that idea of sort of BitTorrent and decentralized networks. And then he also took this proof of work idea and then combined them with, in my opinion, what were some pretty sound economic principles and uh, created what we know as, as, as Bitcoin. Um, the proof of work algorithm, which is what does the mining, 
the, the needle in the haystack search is what, um, you know, it gets people to contribute something of value. And so, um, because the power in the computing, the computer you use is they cost money. Mm. And so a lot of people will say that unlike gold, Bitcoin doesn't have any intrinsic value. Um, it's not backed by anything. Mm-hmm. Technically it's true, uh, that there's no ounce of gold or anything else in a vault for every Bitcoin in the world. But Bitcoin is backed by the hardware and the power, like physically backed by the hardware and the expenditure of energy that it takes to run the network. And it's very high at this point. I was watching something with this guy who had this massive, massive warehouse or like a bunch of warehouses in Iceland that were just storing these computers, like racks and racks and racks of these computers it must have been like tens of thousands of computers that were all mining the Bitcoin. Uh-huh, so right. it's people like that who keep Bitcoin alive, right? Right. Yeah, basically. Well, they secure the network. And so uh, most people don't know this, but Bitcoin is... Uh, and what kind of money does the that largest, guy make? The, it's the largest, basically, uh, cryptographic network in the world. So it's, it's the Bitcoin network is actually the biggest supercomputer in the world. That's like pretty scary. T- together. It's not scary because it only is good at doing one thing. Right. But right is, now. Yeah. <laughs> it's only good at finding, you know, for the most part, the the way the hardware is built these days. It's really only good at one particular hashing algorithm, which is good for finding Bitcoin. So um, why isn't Bitcoin good for investing or like long-term investing? It's only good. Cause who it's so, said that? I was watching something earlier. I think it was... Um, Anto- uh, Ant- what's his name? Uh, Andreas Antonopoulos. Andreas Antonopoulos. He's awesome. You should he, have him on. He was saying <laughs> that Bitcoin is not good for investing your money into. It's good for transact, like making transactions, but it's not good. It's not a good way to invest money and earn a return. Something because it's so volatile. Maybe I didn't listen. Maybe I didn't hear that right. Well, it, it, okay. If you're getting in the world of like investing, you know, it's right. like not investment advice. Am I better to invest in the S&P 500 or invest all my money in Bitcoin? Well, the S&P 500, 500 has been pretty volatile as well li- lately. But, um, but over the past but 100 it's years, well. it's gone up. Right. That's a personal, a personal preference mm-hmm. thing. So Andreas uh, kind of famously um, a few years ago, he – he he he's always spent but he's he's received payment in bitcoin for mm. his speaking fees and mm-hmm. he all, he spends it for everything and so uh and i think he had some like family emergencies and stuff where he cashed in a lot of his bitcoin earlier on before it like went parabolic right. the, the last time um and so he really didn't have a lot of bitcoin that he held um and so that's his personal investment philosophy he uses it as a okay as a medium of exchange and um and he he kind of, I think, uh, hedges against the volatility by going ahead and spending it um, okay. more closely immediately. Uh, a guy named Roger Ver, who's a, a big name kind of in the Bitcoin world, he used to be called Bitcoin Jesus. Um, he right, owns, yeah, he's a kind of a wacky guy. He owns Bitcoin.com. Right. Uh, he, he said he tweeted out something like to Andreas. This is like th- two or three years ago now. He tweeted out that... Uh, if only Andreas had kept a few hundred dollars worth of of Bitcoin uh, and hold on to it, he would be a millionaire by now, you know. And um, Andreas said, 
responded somehow. But what, what ended up happening, you know, Andreas has a, like a donation address, like a Bitcoin address that he just has posted um, on on his Twitter. Okay. Somebody donated a million dollars to Andreas. Like he's like, no. there, now you're a millionaire. Holy <laughs> shit. <laughs> yeah. When was this? 2017 or 16, 17, 18, something like that. What's the like that. most Bitcoin has ever been worth? Uh, it was actually, I think the, the highest value was uh, $19,666 is what I saw. Wow. So almost $20,000. And that was in December of 2017. December. And what is it at right now? In it is at 11, October of 2020. $11,300. $11,300. Yeah. So it's about half. About half. That's but, not good. But, well, it was even worse than that. Uh, I think it, it hit 3,000 something uh, in 2018. Really? Actually, no. When in March, when the big crash happened uh, in the market, everything crashed. Yeah. Uh, Bitcoin went down to I think 4,000 something again. It was out, it had been back up at like 10 or whatever, but it just or eight or nine, and it just, but it came back just like the market did. It came back and rebounded, and it's back to where it was before mm-hmm. the the March crash. But yeah. Um, that being said, so I, when I started with Bitcoin, Bitcoin was a hundred dollars almost exactly. And what? 2012? 2013. Okay. I, I was gonna start mining in 2012, fall 2012, but, um, here I'll talk about the arms race a little with mining. It was a little rabbit hole. Um, when Bitcoin I told you earlier that Litecoin was it was just a tweak of the Bitcoin network. It changed the block time. What that means is that um, the the network targets for a new block to be found about every ten minutes for Bitcoin. But it's not like a hard. It's not like a hard. Um, it's not like it happens every ten minutes. It's a target. It's how fast the computers can do it, right? Exactly. Okay. So a lot of times, what happens is a computer will get lucky. And it'll find it in two minutes or something, you know. And, and so over the course of two weeks, it wants, it, it checks to see if the average is 10 minutes. And if it's not, what it'll do is it'll either make the puzzle harder or so, or, or, or easier, depending, to, to make it 10 minutes. So if, and pretty much all the time, it's always been getting harder because computers are getting faster and faster and able to find it faster and faster. So mm-hmm. if you... So the faster the computers are, the more height, like the more complex they're encrypted. The the harder the if you want to think about it this way, the bigger the haystack gets, right? For finding the needle in the haystack. Right. So if you get a machine, yeah. if you imagine this machine that gets it's 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 kind of good at finding needles in the haystack, and you know you can have a little small haystack, it'll take it ten minutes, and it'll find it. But if you have this like industrial hay sorter machine that can just gobble that through that in two seconds and find the needle, then it just needs to make a bigger stack. So it started off, you could just mine Bitcoin on on your laptop. Mm -hmm. Like anybody could mine it. Mm -hmm. Um, But then uh, people figured out that uh, if you used uh, GPUs, graphic graphic processing units, Mm -hmm. like video cards, uh, you could get pretty efficient performance. And it was like an order of magnitude better at solving the puzzle. And so then people who had CPUs, you know, just doing it with their laptops, weren't really able to do it anymore because the the GPUs were so good at it that that the the algorithm had to make it harder 
So like if you had your little CPU, you know, it'd be like one guy looking at this giant haystack, you know, uh, to go through and, and he wouldn't be able to, but if you had the GPU, it could power through it and do it in 10 minutes. And then, um, what came out next was FPGAs, field programmable gated arrays, field programmable gate arrays. Anyhow. Um, and those, uh, those lasted a little while. They're basically just uh, like uh, highly adaptable programmable circuits you can you can sort of specialize things for. Um, so they're very good like specialist chips. You can program them to do all... They, they're used in all kinds of industries for all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but then shortly after those came out, the ASICs came out, application-specific integrated circuits. Basically, these are CPUs that are designed to do just one thing and they're designed to do them really well, special built, custom built. And, um, these were supposed to come out in like the fall of 2012. And there was this one company that was developing them or putting them out called butterfly labs. I almost hate to give them a plug cause it, they ended up being huge scammers, but, um, they're not around anymore. So it's not a big deal. But so in fall of 2012, when I was looking to get into mining, I was going to get some GPUs, and build some computers and whatever. But these Butterfly Labs guys had built all these, or put out all, all these Google ads. Like, I don't know how much they paid on Google ads, but literally any time I searched for anything, uh, you know, Bitcoin mining related, their ads were everywhere. And these ASICs were like an order of magnitude more efficient than the GPUs. So I'm like looking at all these profitability calculators. Okay, if I buy this GPU, you know, it'll pay for itself in like a year or something like that. And then you're looking, then this ad pops up and you're like, Oh my God, if if this thing comes out, it would pay for itself in like three days. You know, you pay a thousand dollars for it or $500 for it. And then it's so fast that in three days of mining Bitcoin, you would get $500 worth of Bitcoin. Mm. Uh, but then they just, so I was like, well, I'm just, I'll just wait until they come out and there's no point in getting my GPU gear ready. And so, uh, but then they didn't come out, they didn't come out, they didn't come out, and then it was like 2013. Uh, they still hadn't come out, or they, well, they still hadn't been delivered. Um, they were out there. It turned out that what Butterfly Labs was doing is, yeah, of course, like if they have the heart, it's like the Cantillion effect I was telling you about with uh, the person that has the money first. Uh, they, so they had these miners that could mine like ridiculously fast, first like they were the first guys so they're like well you know they need to have a burn-in period right where they're tested or something right so they would run them they would they would they were running them at their facilities and then uh that would cause the the network hash rate to go up a lot like the you know because they were really powerful so that meant that the the haystack was getting bigger and then once the haystack had gotten big enough then they would send them to the customers that paid for them Wow. So they would make a ton of money. Oh off my that. God. So what a scam. Big, yeah. And ASIC companies still do that. It's still that way that you need to be whatever the next generation ASIC is, the closer you are to the, like the hardware manufacturer, like, cause literally if you order one making a profit, it could like getting it next week versus the week after next could be the difference between you breaking even and making money or you never really recouping because your, of how fast they're advancing. Well, because of how it's not just the advancement. There's also, you know, if, if you manufacture a bunch of these, like it's a, it, you know, there's strength of numbers too. So the mm-hmm. more you have looking, right. 
mm. the more odds there are that somebody's going to get lucky and find it faster, you know? So, right. So they're mass producing these things too. But that's, that's why instead of getting in, in 2012, when Bitcoin was like $20 or $12 or something like that, I ended up getting in. Finally, I, I just, it was March, I think, or no, fe- January, February, 2013, the price started going up and I was like, man, I missed the boat. I, I should have started. I should have started mm-hmm. uh, mining. I should have just said forget it and bought the computers and mined and and uh, yeah. I remember like a year later, after I'd been mining for a while, I remember I was looking. I was trying to like troubleshoot something, and I, I looked through this. Uh, I was looking through this forum, and it was a post from like yeah mid late 2012, and this guy was like, "Oh, guys, I'm only made, I've got this this GPU, which is the exact GPU yeah. I had." Because I was trying to f- troubleshoot that one GPU. He's like, oh, there's one. I'm only getting one Bitcoin a day. What am I doing wrong? One and, Bitcoin a day. Yeah. And, and 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 at that time, that would have been a fantastic return. Because Bitcoin was, a, when I was reading it, Bitcoin was like $200. And so that would have been like $200 a day off that one little GPU if you'd, if you'd held any out. So Bitcoin right yeah. now is, you said at about $11,000? Yeah. That's right. How much, how could I mine enough to make one bitcoin in a day well the way i told you the block there's the block reward yeah right it it rewards out um now for completing a block so so we've had every four years it cuts in half so it started at 50 Mm -hmm. then four years after it started it went to 12 and a half and then just recently it went to sorry sorry 25. It went to 25. And then it went, the third happening, it went to 12 and a half. And just recently, it went to 6.25. And this is how the... 6.25 what? Bitcoins per block. Okay. Rewarded. It, go, it cuts itself in half every four years. And that's okay. how it's going to go to zero in the future. Oh, that's the mechanism. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, I didn't really... I get it now. That's all right. This is the largest audience I've ever confused. <laughs> so... <laughs> um, Hopefully. Yeah. Um, so... Um, what was the question? Oh, you on my bit one bit. Yeah. So okay, how can so, I? Yeah. How can you mine? So, so now it's down to six and a half Bitcoin per block. Per but block. What people realized, and this happened really early in Bitcoin, like back even when the CPUs and GPUs were used to mine it. Um. So if you were going to buy some hardware to mine Bitcoin, you could set it to mine Bitcoin called solo mining, mm-hmm. where you're just looking you're just playing with everybody else trying to find on the chain mm-hmm. and maybe you'd get lucky and you get 50 bitcoin but it would take you know it's all about statistics and averages or, or uh, uh not statistics but uh um how plausible it is you'll find it's like playing blackjack or something well yeah but it could so so you could run your machine you could get the 50 bitcoins or the 25 bitcoins or now the 6.25 bitcoins but it could take you like three years or something Wow. Of mining. Right. Or what people have done is they join pools. So they pool their power, their mining power, into this pool. And then the pool is much more, because it has a huge amount of mining power, if you just have, like, one miner or something, um, you can hook up to this, you can link up with the pool, and the pool has a huge amount of mining power, so they find a couple blocks a day. Oh, wow. Right? And then what they do is they divvy it up. Okay. To all the, you know, depending on how much you contributed. Um, to do the, you do to this? The miners. I did in the past. Yeah. Okay. That's, I always did pool mining. Why'd you stop? Um, because, well, I stopped mining seriously in 2000, 
15 or 14 the the prices of everything you know bitcoin went up to $1300 in 2013 and then it crashed back down to like 600 by the by January 2014 or February or something like that and mm. then it, it actually eventually made its way back down to i think almost 200 or 250 something like that and during that time it was just not profitable to mine like you spent more in power and being a pain also i had it at, at a friend's warehouse and he ended up um, I ended up not being able to do it there anymore. So um, yeah, isn't it scary? Like have to have, especially pooling. Like if you're talking about pooling and joining other people's power grid and having a bunch of people with their processors that are mining Bitcoin. I mean, you got to be pretty scared. You know, that place has to be pretty secure. Well, and no, no. the 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 thing is, you don't need to pool with people in a physical location. You pool with them wherever they are. So oh. you can be alone in your dorm room, and you can join a pool. Oh, and so. They're all just basically what it'll do is it'll so when you're when you're searching for the the needle in the haystack, you know what they'll do is they'll say, okay, we've got this giant stack. Mm-hmm. All right, here you take this clump of hay. You take this clump of hay. You look through that clump of hay. You look at this clump. Of okay, hay. I get it. You look through this clump of hay. Right. And they can divvy that out over the internet, right? So. Um, but there are huge facilities that, like you talked about, the one in Iceland, mm-hmm. where and there's a ton of them in China, where they um, they just go through the you know they have these giant facilities and so yeah, security is probably an issue. Although really, if you break in there, all all you're gonna really be able to get is you're not gonna be able to get at the Bitcoin, you know, like right. It's, it's just a bunch of. Hardware but if someone wanted to, they could just go fucking take a baseball bat and break all your computers and. Yeah, they could do that. So yeah, pooling. Um, so pooling allows small operators to get like a a, a regular return, you know. Instead right. of like if you if you buy a piece of hardware uh, to buy Bitcoin and you hook it up as a solo miner, you'd be like, well, maybe I'll get six point two five bitcoins, uh, but it might take two years for me to find that. Or you mm-hmm. could say, I'm going to hook up to a pool where they're regularly finding blocks, and then they're going to divvy up. Uh, uh, the, you know, depending on how many uh, stacks of hay you looked at, they'll give you your proportionate share of that block okay. plus a fee, you know, for them running the pool. Right. So then you get, maybe you'll get the same amount. Maybe you get 6.25 Bitcoin in two years over the, you know, over the course of you running it. Mm-hmm. But uh, you're getting it in like a steady stream instead of just, oh, wow, I found a block all at once, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so when is this, when did you say it stops again? I think it's 2130 2130 but so today is uh it's 2020 today uh and we're already at 18 million i think of the 21 million. 18 million bitcoins of the 21 yeah so it's 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 gonna get a less and less amount you know as, as like it's it's a really like winnowing it's down probably gonna be way earlier well no it'll be that it'll be 2130 but by then you, you know the What's funny is it's actually worked um, that the the value is kept up with the halvenings, you know. So, like, uh, at, at every halvening, it's kind of like basically the miner's profitability is cut in half overnight. But on the long run, uh, the price has managed to keep up pretty well as far as, you know. So even in, you know, 2130 or whatever, like when people – or mining mm. some fraction of, you know, like one Bitcoin every block, you know, like 0.05 Bitcoin per block or whatever it is. 
you know, that 0 0.05 Bitcoin may be worth How do they come up with that number? Dollars. Why that number, though? I don't what? get it. 21. 21 million? Yeah. You know, I think Satoshi talked about it somewhere. There's a really cool book called The Book of Satoshi. That's all of his writings. Uh, ever that everybody, anybody's been able to really find, like so online and whatever, and they compiled them into a book called The Book of Satoshi. And I think he may have talked about why he picked 21 million. I think it was just like a, uh, an equation he did that basically, you know, because people think, you know, hey, what if the global, global economy is running on Bitcoin? Remember we talked about divisibility yeah. being a fundamental thing of money? Mm -hmm. That, you know, that there's more than 21 people in the world. So, you know, does that mean it's going to be too scarce? Like, are people going to be... 21 million people. Yeah, there's, you know, 7, 8 billion. Right, now. exactly. So it's not enough for everybody to have right. one Bitcoin. So, uh, but Bitcoins are divisible by eight decimal points. So it's, so of, of uh, the 21 million, it's that many time. you know, so the, the amount of units can be chopped up into is eight billions. Oh, oh yeah. Once you, okay. Yeah. It may even be trillions. One Bitcoin you can divide eight times? No, you can divide it to the eighth decimal place. Eighth decimal place. Okay. Yeah. So it's, it's real small. I've never done the math on it, but right, okay. you could, so you can have a lot of Bitcoin units. So even if Bitcoin was worth like a million dollars, theoretically, uh, the, 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 the unit of Bitcoin is they've, they've, uh, they've called it the Satoshi. So like, that's, that's like 0. <laughs> 0.000001 Bitcoin is, is one Satoshi. So, okay. so if I think I did the math once or even if Bitcoin was a million dollars, one Satoshi is still worth $5. Wow. So you could buy coffee with it. Wow. Right. So it could be that, so I think you just did some math like, okay, 21 million is a good number. It's divisible, you know, it's it's when you divide it up by to the eighth decimal place, it's plenty of currency to go around uh, and be used around the world practically for, for things. But um, And these these apps that you not, use on your phone to buy stuff, do they do the math for you? Like, do they yeah, automatically? Like, like wallets? Like yeah, like wallet the wallet, whatever, yeah, however yeah. you transact on your phone. Yeah, yeah, they, they'll, they, they usually keep up with some exchange rate okay. or something. And so you can either enter U.S. dollar mm -hmm. amount or the Bitcoin amount. However you want to do it. Okay. So now when we were talking about those alt coins right. like Litecoin or Ethereum or whatever, what did the Winklevoss twins, the two Facebook twins, yeah. when they first got into Bitcoin, is that what they started doing was developing their own alt coin or did they just invest a bunch of money into Bitcoin and they what they did is they um I don't know their thought processes when they got in exactly, but they saw they saw it as something very promising, and so they, when they got their settlement from Facebook, um, you know, they had a fair amount of capital to play with. What they started doing is they started investing in early Bitcoin companies that were dealing with Bitcoin. So they they were angel investors for a couple of companies, I think. That, and then they bought a ton of it, and they bought it at like, I don't know how much. I don't know what their cost basis per coin was, but it's low. Mm -hmm. It was probably below $100 per coin, and they put millions and millions into it. Mm. So they're worth a lot of money. What were the companies doing that they were investing in, the Bitcoin companies? The, the one I know about, I'm pretty sure about this. I'm not... Is it called Libra or something? Um, no, that was Facebook's... Uh, oh, thing. yeah. He, Zuckerberg tried to make a competing one. That's... That's an interesting story too. That's uh, everything's a rabbit hole in crypto. So that's that's why it's so hard to talk about. Um, so the uh, 
the Winklevoss, I believe they invested in BitInstant, which was uh, you could buy Bitcoin with a credit card, you know, over a website. Um, the founder, one of the founders of that, named Charlie Shrem, he actually lives in this area. We should get him on. Uh, he lives around What's here. his name? Charlie Shrem. Charlie Shrem. Mm-hmm. But he ended up being kind of made example of, uh, he actually went to jail for a couple of years for some stuff involved, but BitInstant basically ended up failing. Um, but th- that didn't, the Winklevoss, um, that still didn't keep them from owning, they own a ton of Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know what it is, how much it is, but they've definitely got billions of dollars in, I think, Bitcoin at this point. Is Charlie the guy who uh, was running Silk Road? No. Oh, okay. That was Ro- Ross Ulbricht. Ross Ulbricht. Allegedly, right? Allegedly, okay. Is that um, the guy you were telling me about? Who, yeah, uh, we were talking about on the phone. Mm, I think so. Yeah. What's his story? So he was in like a library or something. Yes, that was crazy. Uh, so the Silk Road. There's been many versions after him. Yeah, because I guess it's a popular idea. But mm-hmm. basically, and that's why Bitcoin has such a bad rap to it because people think about buying drugs or buying organs or buying whatever. <laughs> whatever. Yeah. Human well, trafficking. So, so basically. Ross and or uh, people around Ross or a group of people built this thing in 2000, probably 11 or 10, mm-hmm. maybe 2010. Yeah, 11. No, no, it's probably 2011 or 12. Mm-hmm. They built uh, this thing called the Silk Road and it ran on the dark web, right? Um, which is uh, sort of a area of the internet that you can't really access unless you know how to get there. But... Um, the it was basically eBay for, with, but you used Bitcoin, and you could list anything on there. So while one could easily sell shirts or tchotchkes or knitted sweaters, mm-hmm. um, I'd say that there was a large amount of uh, drug sales on the Silk Road, mm-hmm. and it was brought to the attention of some political folks. I think the famous video was like Chuck Schumer who is like looking at it. It was like a news story and Chuck Schumer was like scrolling. He's like, Oh my God, you can buy anything on here. And that's when they exploded. Like that's when it became like a, that, that was like huge advertising for them. People were like, Oh wait, I can do what? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, they went on uh silk road and, uh, you could buy, basically you'd pay for it with Bitcoin and then it would get mailed to you, you know? So just like eBay, except for, you know, anything, and anything. Basically, it was free market, right? Mm-hmm. And so Ross was kind of... Uh, and there's no way of tracking the, you when you buy it with Bitcoin, right? There's no way anyone can find out it was you. Well... Unless you're like an extreme hacker. No, it's... That's part of the... So Bitcoin is... Uh, this is a little tiny rabbit hole here. Bitcoin is what we call pseudonymous. It's not anonymous. Okay. So basically you have... Um, you have an address that you're given, right? Mm-hmm. Um that you that your wallet creates and it's just like a long string of characters right it's like i don't know how many 36 digits long or something like that and uh it just looks like gobbledygook but that's your address and so the way bitcoin forms consensus which is another big innovation of bitcoin is uh um the ledger which so it's like if you have your money in a bank right uh the bank has a you know, let's just imagine it's the olden days and they ascribe says, okay, you came by and you deposited $10 in the bank. And they, so they make an entry in their 
their little ledger it says, okay, this account, this person's account plus ten dollars. Then you come out next day and you withdraw five. Okay, this person's account minus five dollars. Mm-hmm. That's how you know all the banks in the world do it. There's some guy, and so if you come and you try to withdraw fifteen dollars, so you only have ten in, they say, oh no, you don't have enough. Uh, so we we can't we can't give you fifteen dollars because you only have ten in there or five left, whatever. So uh, the way that Bitcoin solves this sort of problem of seeing who owns what. Um, which is a big problem that that they solve is is the ledger for Bitcoin is public, so you can go and you can look on uh, the Bitcoin blockchain. There's like websites called Block Explorers that basically will check all these transactions that the miners have written into the blockchain, and they'll they can if you just put in an address, you can see all the transactions that have ever happened for that address. Really. Mm-hmm. But how do you know who has like, who owns that address? You don't necessarily. Okay. But if you can map a person to an address, like if like if I send you a Bitcoin address to uh, pay me for something, mm-hmm. right? Then you know, hey, that address belongs to Rich, and mm. then you can you can go to Bucketsport and you can see my entire his- history for that address. Oh. And then so the various authorities and or companies, organizations have actually gotten very good at this sort of blockchain analysis stuff. Hmm. There's lots of tricks they can use. And so this is actually something that's, because remember the cypherpunks were all about privacy. So at the time it was thought to be, when Bitcoin came out, people said that's private, you know? And it was, more or less, it's kind of anonymous, but with the tools that have come out now, that's actually becoming more of a problem where people can kind of figure out who's doing what on the blockchain uh, mm. through some complex analytics and stuff like right. that. There's, there's like actually, actually not too long ago, the IRS put out a, know, a job posting, basically uh, asking for people who are experts in blockchain analysis to really? apply. Yeah. Cause they're very interested in stuff too, because if people are making money on Bitcoin, they want to know. We want you to pay tax on that shit, right? right exactly. Okay. So uh, the original question, though. Yeah, I want to hear about how this guy got, the guy who so, started Silk Road and how he got busted and what's going on right. with him. So he, um, uh, I forget how I was tying all that in, but yeah, so basically he built this. He built like an eBay where eBay. you can buy anything you want. And people didn't like it. Well, no, people loved it. The government didn't like it. The government didn't like it. Um, so the, the FBI started investigating and figured out, and actually part of the, I think one of the ways that they were able to track it to him is he had posted a Bitcoin address at some point uh, in a forum to like for somebody to send money to him, and uh, he he went by the handle of the Dread Private Dread Pirate Roberts DPR, and uh, and so this uh, that was able to link that they were able to then link it to link that address to one of the Silk Road addresses. And then to that username, and then just had to figure out who that username was. And um, a lot of people speculate that he may have not been like the only guy running, but he was just maybe an admin or something. He definitely was involved, mm-hmm. as far as we can tell. Um, but he, uh, so they figured out who he was, and yeah, they they did a sting operation on him, uh, and they did it in a public library. He would go to a public library library to work, and. So the big thing when you're dealing with somebody who's you're trying to investigate or get their 
you know, any incriminating evidence that may be on their computer, right? But he's a fairly knowledgeable crypto security guy. So, like, a lot of, if you're in a position like him where he may or may not be, like, favorable to the government, uh, you know, under investigation or something, uh, you might, like, have a thing where if you do a certain key press on your computer, it encrypts your whole computer, or mm. if you close your lid... You know, you, it's encrypted and like locked it so it. they can't yeah. get into it. Um, so they set up this thing where this male and female FBI agent pretended to get into a fight at in the library, uh-huh. like right they were like right near him, and the fight was es- like escalated to a point where he felt like he needed to get involved. So what he did is he sat his laptop down, open, and stood up to go approach them or something. And that's the moment where they basically pounced. And she, the the dude moved to restrain him. And then the, the girl went and threw this thumb drive thing in his computer that would keep keep it from shutting down and start downloading everything off of it. What? Yeah. They have these little, it's like a little, it's just like a little. It's like a thumb drive that just sucks everything out of the computer? Yeah, basically. And he and didn't also, have any kind of And it's also suit. got like a mouse wiggler in it. So basically, like if, the, so it won't let the laptop go idle. You just keep wiggling the mouse or something, so it keeps. And then they, see so yeah, how they got him, and then they uh, leveled all these crazy charges on him. Um, the to this day, when I talk to people at Ross Ulbricht, they're like, "Oh yeah, isn't that a guy that did murder for hire uh, on the Silk Road?" There was a murder for hire charge placed on him as this long list of charges. And one of them was murder for hire. And that's the one that made like all the headlines mm. that he basically was trying to have somebody off and pay them in Bitcoin, you know, and this thing. But, at, but before the trial even started, like that was completely dropped. Like there was, it was completely baseless. No, no basis in fact whatsoever. And, but it's enough to like, it, why to did this, they come up with that? Why did they say that? I, to smear him. Really? Yeah. I think nobody like, like tried to try to, pay somebody on Silk Road as like there's a hitman. The, there's the old saying that, you know, uh, that a lie can go around the world twice before the truth gets its shoes on, <laughs> you know? That's funny. So, like, you know, the redaction of that or the fact that those charges are dropped isn't news. But the charges themselves are, are good news. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, like, posting that this kid was doing murder for hire stuff, you know, makes sells newspapers, but like saying, Oh, that was retracted like a year later or, mm. or doesn't, but either way they, what they got him for. Well, maybe um, they said that, maybe they said that like somebody did like on Silk road, tried to hire a hitman to commit a murder on his platform. No, they were saying, so he therefore did. he's no, no, guilty. No, they of said it. that he did it himself. That was the, that was the implication was he did it himself. Okay. But, but do you that, know? Do you know if charge, anyone did that? Do you know? That? Do you know if that was something that happened on Silk Road? It, I don't think it did happen on Silk Road. No, it's not really uh, like a, I don't know how you would advertise like murder. I mean, would you just say I don't know if you put up a posting like, "Hey, I'll, I'll kill people for you." I don't. I don't Enforcer think, or like I, I don't think I think they did have ad, I think they did have terms of service. I'm not an expert on it, but I think they, they did. did have, <laughs> I think they did have terms of service. I'm pretty sure that would have been outside. <laughs> And they might have flagged it or something. The yeah, they might have flagged it. Okay. So I don't. I don't think that actually was happening on Silk Road, and uh, he definitely was not involved in it personally. Mm-hmm. So, but that that kind of helped soil his reputation, though. And then, I mean, basically, he was made example of. 
I, I think uh, they they hit him with like kingpin charges for for all the drug stuff. Uh, it resulted in the arrests of a bunch of uh, people who were actually dealing drugs, um, because they were able to tie them tie their addresses to them personally through like chain analysis or something. They think mm. they made missteps missteps somewhere along the way to mm. to, to compromise their identities mm-hmm. on the blockchain, and they so they made several arrests on the um, uh, of actual drug dealers, but. To my knowledge, I don't think Ross ever dealt any drugs. He just ran the platform, you know. Right. So and what he made, like he, him, he hit like a middleman fee on the tra- yeah, transactions. Yeah, he made a fee. And 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 he was also the escrow agent. So like, um, now if you send money to somebody, uh, you have PayPal, right? Mm-hmm. And PayPal um, basically kind of holds the money until and you transfer makes, it, and then makes sure that you send the goods, right? So they would act as like. Uh, an escrow agent so the the bitcoin they would hold the bitcoin and then release it once it was delivered safely you know okay. to the so actually they were holding a lot of bitcoin when it was seized so a lot of people who were using the platform lost a lot of bitcoin to Damn. the government and they they i guess were able to i don't know if it was on his laptop or if, it, if, if via his laptop they were able to get access to other servers but they uh it was a lot of bitcoin it was like six six hundred thousand Bitcoin or 60,000, 60, something like that Bitcoin that was on there. It was Jeez. millions of dollars. And they sent it out in uh, increments that, I don't know what it is on the phone, but if you know, uh, on, a, on a touch-tone phone, you got the numbers that line up with the, or the, the letters that line up, like in the old days, if you wanted to text, you'd do like, uh, you know, like two, let's see, like so, I can't do it in my head, but like, you know, two, one, three would, would like spell a word. It's like each letter had three, each number had three letters attached to it. Anyway, like five eight zero zero eight upside down is boobs. No, not like that. Like, oh. uh, if you anyhow, it was. I think it was like. Let's see, one is A B C. Two is um, on, a, on a touchtone phone. Two is. Uh, oh, I see. D, what you're saying. Right. I see okay, what you're saying. so it was. Yeah, I, I want to say it was. It was two one. They sent it. They sent it out in increments. That was two one. Three or four, two one four, and it was it was the FBI. Like if you typed it into a phone, it'd be FBI. And they so they sent it out of the wall, out of the Ross Ulbricht wallet in those increments that made FBI. So it was like a hundred transactions of, wow. of of that amount to different wallets that the government, and then the government auctioned them off a couple years later. Really? Yeah. Do you know um, what the current status of his his cases? So or? yeah, it's pretty sad. So he got. Uh, like I said, level like he had kingpin charges put on him, so like I like could use a drug kingpin, and he got a double life sentence. So he's in jail forever. They've appealed it. A double several, life sentence. Double life sentence. Yeah. For running a website where people can yeah, sell I drugs. I think he was like twenty like five or twenty six when it this all happened. So yeah, so he's got a double life sentence. His mom, who's a great person, his name her name's Lynn. Um, uh, if you go to freeross.org, you can find a bunch of information about him and his case. She runs freeross.org. She's spoken at my meetup before, um, a couple years ago. And, you know, she basically, I mean, she's his mom. So of course, but she talks about, they've done, they've appealed it all the way to the Supreme court 
and basically his only hope now is a presidential pardon. Really? That's all he's got left. Yeah, it's a presidential party. So there's, Fuck. so Free Ross org, they're trying to do like petitions and stuff to. How old was Trump. he when he went in? What's that? How old was he when he went into prison? He was prison? in his 20s. In his, God. Yeah. I'm pretty sure he was like 25, 26, something like that. You know, a couple years out of college. And, you know, she says he was just an idealistic, an idealistic yeah. kid. You know, he just wanted to create this marketplace to mm -hmm. facilitate trade and whatever. He wasn't like trying to be a drug kingpin or ruin mm -hmm. people's lives or anything like that. Or, um, But, yeah, that's what you get for building certain websites is double life sentences. So it's pretty bad. Uh, so yeah, but there's more silk. Like there's more. Go ahead. What were you saying? I was gonna say anybody listening, go to freeross.org and check out his story and uh, what you can do to help. Yeah. Now, aren't there other websites like Silk Road out there now? Yeah. Like dark web style websites where you can buy. Oh, yeah. And as buy soon stuff. as that Silk Road went down, somebody built another one. Right. And yeah. that one, that one scammed everybody. Like uh, the, the second one that was built. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Once they got to a certain critical mass of. Mm -hmm. You know, because they were acting as an escrow agent as well. So instead of the FBI stealing all their money, uh, stealing all the users' money like the original Silk Road, this guy just, once he got to a certain amount of Bitcoin that he had, um, he just shut everything down and took the money and ran. Jeez. But yeah, since then, there have been tons um, of people that makes different, I mean, it's just, it was a good idea, or a popular idea. Mm. got a lot of traction, so... And if you think about it, you know, if you if you're into doing drugs or whatever, uh, it's a pretty safe way of acquiring. Like I know that there's. I mean, I had a friend of mine in college who he got like carjacked and beat up once just trying to get um, some drugs from some neighborhood once. Oh, you mean like on the streets? Yeah, he went yeah. to the wrong neighborhood and they stole his car. It had his guitar, his heavy guitar in the back seat. Yeah. They stole his car and beat him up. God damn, dude. And uh, he was just trying to buy some weed, I think. What? And, Where uh, was he? It was in Augusta, Georgia. Okay. Yeah, so um, so it's dangerous. So, I mean, it's uh, yeah. for all parties involved, you know, just paying some money and getting it in the mail. If it's just something yeah. you're, you know, it's just for your own recreational purposes and whatever, and, you mm -hmm. you know, it's your body, you can screw it up however you want or or become enlightened however you look at yeah. it, right? Um, they just need to legalize drugs, man. It makes everything so much yeah. better. All drugs. Yeah, I mean, the war on drugs has been uh, pretty terrible for our country and yeah. the world. Like, it's it's definitely failed and uh, definitely the biggest hoax ever. Well, and it's the biggest overreach. I mean, I've been, I've had my car searched uh, at least two times um, just based on one was when I was a teenager and the cop was like, hey, you know, can we search your car? And I was an idiot. And I was like, yeah, sure. I don't care. And uh, I mean, because I knew there was nothing in there. Mm -hmm. But my, this is my dad's car before it was mine. Oh, was shit. We found some like pill bottles for my dad's prescription. Hey, what are these? And I was yeah. like, I don't know, man. Like, you know, it's just my dad it had my name. He's the same name as mine. So mm -hmm. had my name on it. And I was like, I don't know, man, there's my dad. It's like still he was trying, you know, they're trying to find something. And then the second time was maybe five, six years ago. Yeah. And uh, then I was smarter and I was like, no, you can't search my vehicle. Mm -hmm. And next thing I know, they had a dog there and they told me that the dog had alerted to my vehicle. And then the dog was in my car. And I was like, yeah, 
Well, all that's right. happened to me multiple times on the way to uh, back and forth from Miami and the Keys. Really? Yeah, on Alligator Alley. There's a road uh, that I don't know if you're very familiar with, like South Florida, but there's a there's this long stretch of road that goes from the west coast of Florida to the east coast of mm-hmm. Florida, like down low, and that's where a lot of the drug traffickers are notorious for traveling right. and smuggling shit. And I, when I was younger, I got pulled over almost every time that I drove down that road. Got my car completely strip searched, everything. Right, even if you said no. But that's a wormhole too. That's a whole. I mean, that's a whole other rabbit hole we could go down to the war on drugs. But <laughs> well, I, I get in a lot of arguments with my wife uh, about politics and, uh, um, you know, like the fairness of unfairness of our society in a lot of ways. And, yeah. And really, I think that it's. I mean, a lot of it orbits right around that this whole criminalization of drugs and what people want to do with their own bodies. Right. And and, and the. Uh, I mean, luckily we're in a time where like weed is becoming, you know, marijuana is becoming legal in most places, um, yeah. especially for med. I mean, if it's even legal in Georgia for mm-hmm. medical use, um, medical marijuana is legal as far as I know. CBD is legal in Georgia, um, and we're not exactly known for being a progressive right uh, state. Not at all. So, um, I I mean, I think that you know, putting people in prison for nonviolent things is. Uh, I mean, even Trump. Uh, did something a couple like a couple years ago where he rolled out some forgiveness program for people mm-hmm. with nonviolent uh, people with nonviolent drug offenses and stuff like that. Because I mean, it ruins. I mean, you ruin people's lives. Actually, funny enough, I was just at uh, a diner before I came here, and I was talking to this guy there, and he's older now. He's probably late fifties, but he said that he. Uh, He'd he'd gone to jail for four years in the '90s for dealing cocaine. Really? Yeah. He's like, you know, it's part of my story now. It's fine. He's a successful guy now. You know, yeah. he came out and he's doing fine. But you know, it just it drags so many people into it that really, you know, otherwise be productive members of society. Yeah, you get sucked into that system, that yeah. that judi- that criminal justice system that. And it's the vicious, just, it's, and it's, the vicious it's, cycles. It yeah, I mean, I've you can't to, escape it, and it's it's it's. It's slavery is what it is. I mean, it's literally just like modern day slavery. Yeah. Well, I don't know if they're out doing work in the fields, but I know. Right. But they work for those prisons. The people in those prisons, they, they do a shitload of work and they make, I forget what the number is, but they make those federal prisons get paid a certain amount of money per inmate per day. Right. It definitely feeds the bureaucracy. Right. And, uh, yeah. So there's a, I recommend a book. Uh, I forget the author's name, but he's from Florida. Uh, it's called Arrest Proof Yourself. I would definitely read that Arrest book. Arrest Proof Yourself. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It's a good book. It's on Audible, so you can Is it? listen to it while you're driving to the Keys. Okay. Yeah, I haven't <laughs> driven there in a while, but that's a good one. <laughs> I'll have to check yeah, that I one out. I just read that recently. It's really good. Um, but it talks about, he calls it the uh, electronic plantation which is the it's basically what he calls the NCIC uh national arrest records uh basically even if you're arrested in this country now it goes into the NCIC database um even if everything's dropped even if you get paid by the state because it was all done improperly and you're mm-hmm. you're innocent um just having that arrest record can really screw up your life um, and he goes through all kinds of examples of how that is. Really? So, yeah. You said he's in Florida? Yeah, he lives in Florida. I forget his name. But he wrote it like 10 years ago. But it's still an interesting book. So, yeah, Arrest Proof Yourself. But it, it just kind of goes into uh, how corrupt and how 
incentivize how arrest happy our mm. nation is. And then with the when you combine that with uh, the drug, the war on drugs, um, where you can get people to go into jail for mm-hmm. just having possession of something. I mean, it just it's 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 if we could get rid of that one, if I could say, if I could snap my fingers and say there's one thing to get rid of in the in this country. I think even ahead of even ahead of like the uh, the whole fiat money system, the, the Federal Reserve system, where we right. have, like our money is backed by nothing, mm-hmm. I would probably just get rid of the war on drugs. I think that would help. There's a lot. country I can't remember. I can never remember exactly what country it is, but there's a country that actually made all like the hardcore drugs legal. And if you want, if you're a heroin addict, you can actually go into a clinic and have a conversation with uh, a doctor who can like tell, like talks to you about. Right. what the effects of them are and if you want to safely take your heroin they'll give you a fucking syringe and I think it's like Spain or something like that uh, it's it? not Spain maybe it is I don't I don't I remember. remember it's it is some yeah I've I've, I've heard that same thing but too, they've but seen a huge drop in crime like a massive right. their crime rate is like extremely low well, because of that when you, when you treat it like a you know, a, a, a disease instead of making them a criminal mm-hmm. you, you know you help a lot of things I mean a lot of people are just self-medicating themselves for pain and suffering and whatever you know and so like especially here right especially in this country a lot of people are unhappy yeah i guess so we got the opioid crisis or whatever but um yeah i don't know man i think that's a but like i was saying the silk road it it just it provided a safer way i mean it's happening anyway Mm -hmm. i mean people are gonna go find this stuff if they want it they can find it it's a safe way to do it it's a safer way to do it in my opinion so I mean, it's it it it's it's to a degree charitable, and I've talked to people, I've had some conversations with people, not many, uh, that that have used those types of things, and both like on both sides of the, the transaction, and they were just like, yeah, man, it's just night and day. The they liked it. Oh yeah, I mean, just because the safety and the and the the ease of it, and yeah, so. So what's the best way for me to start investing in Bitcoin? Do I use do I use one of these altcoins like Litecoin or Ethereum? Well, there's literally thousands and thousands of altcoins now. Right. <laughs> and uh, and they're all just so. What's the difference between most of these altcoins and the original Bitcoin? They all have various. Some of them, like Litecoin, I told you about. They were just like they even like dubbed themselves when they came out like Bitcoin is gold and will be silver. They mm-hmm. had a faster block time. Mm-hmm. There's going to be more of them emitted in the mm-hmm. end because of that faster block time. I'm pretty sure. And um, but literally, it was just a copy and paste of the code. There's no right. new functionality. Just trying just to rebrand it and make money. Thing. And and it worked out. And it's still a fairly valuable coin, you know. Despite what is so being it. so then there's a lot of other ones though that. Um, the add functionality of some kind. Hmm. So there's a lot of experimentation happening. So Ethereum. Yeah. This kid Vitalik, right? Vitalik, yeah. He's getting flown. He's meeting with Vladimir, Vladimir Putin, Putin <laughs> and the Kremlin. And he's all over like, what well, does, what's so special Canadi- about this kid? I think he's Canadian and he is, uh, but he's a Russian son of Russian immigrants. So he's a scary looking kid. <laughs> he's funny. There's lots of really funny memes of him. <laughs> I, bet. I bet. I bet. It's a famous meme. Uh, Vitalik laughing. Anyhow, I've met him uh, in 2014 at a conference before Ethereum launched. And uh, he was just a kid that was writing for uh, Bitcoin, was it Bitcoin Magazine? 
Yeah, Bitcoin Magazine. He was just doing some writing for them, and he was super interested in Bitcoin. He was a programmer. And, uh, I mean, at the time, he, he couldn't have been over 20 years old. And, um, and so, yeah, he just... Uh, I think he actually was trying to pitch some of his ideas to the Bitcoin uh, sort of core developing team, the mm-hmm. guys who kind of maintain Bitcoin. Um, but in the end, he just ended up launching Ethereum. And it's basically a smart contract. It's called a smart contracts platform. So uh, it just adds a bunch of... That's uh, what Ethereum is? Yeah, it adds a bunch of sort of a code layer on top of the currency and actually he never really envisioned according to him he never envisioned ethereum itself being like a currency it's just it's just the the token that everything runs on on his on on all these smart contracts so smart contracts can do things like uh basically instead of bitcoin where you just okay i want to send it to you i'm going to send it to you now okay did you get it yes i got it uh bitcoin can do some other things and it can actually do smart contracts too it just hasn't really been built out but instead of that, you can make a lot of more complicated, a lot more complicated uh, things happen on Ethereum. Like uh, you can make a smart contract that, say, if you put your coins in it, uh, it'll send them out to everybody in three weeks or something. It'll send them out to these four people or something like that. Or if uh, if you want to have a job done or something, you could send it to a smart contract, and once you you know, that way the, the guy doing the job knows that the funds are there and locked in the smart contract. And then maybe once you guys both agree that everything's done to satisfaction, then the funds get dispersed to whoever needs them. And then there's lots of more complicated uh, use cases. But one of the one of the main ones that's happening right now, like as we speak, that's kind of a big deal. You asked me, where can you get Bitcoin? Okay, where can you get this? That was your initial question. Um, so the answer to that, a year ago, well, the answer to that now is still there's centralized exchanges. So there's there's people who have set up services, like the one I told you about earlier, BitInstant, where you just buy Bitcoin with a credit card. One of the earliest ones, well, the earliest one, I think, was one called MT Gox, um, which uh, stands for Magic the Gathering Online Exchange. Oh, yeah, I've heard of that one. Uh, it, was a, it, was a, it was basically eBay. For it was based in Japan for trading magic cards, which is like a, a yeah, I know magic. Card game. Yeah. yeah, so th- you know, so they had this like marketplace kind of thing, and the owner of the guy that bought it, it was this French guy. Uh, what was his name? Wow, I can't forget. I can't believe I forgot his name. Anyhow, he uh, he bought it and decided that he wanted to add like a Bitcoin market. Like, okay, you can buy bitcoins here. And so he just put a thing up where they were selling Bitcoins because I guess he was mining them or whatever. And it became like a huge thing. And then they ditched the, they kept, they were still called Mt. Gox or MT Gox. They ditched the card trading thing altogether. It was gone. They just became a Bitcoin exchange. Really? So you could wire them money uh, and then they would send you Bitcoin or ACH money to them. Um, and there were no restrictions pretty much whatsoever. But they went down in 2014, kind of epically. How did they go down? Um, I think it was a hack. Um, it could have been an inside job. It's still under investigation. Oh, and they lose like millions and millions of dollars. Yeah, lots, lots of money. It was in it happened sometime in early 2014. Uh, they their website went down. For, first, what happened first? They'd had a bunch of scares. First of all, 
like it wasn't very well run. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they'd have a bunch of, they'd had problems for like <laughs> ever uh, with scale, you know, scaling to meet this huge demand that was coming in and, and, and so they'd have problems and they usually had fixed them and they had like a big lead and the whole kind of network, network effect. Like they were the big name. And, uh, yeah, then one day, I think in like January, February, um, 2013, they stopped doing Bitcoin withdrawals. Hmm. So they suspended with Bitcoin withdrawals and people were like, Whoa, what's going on with that? And then, um, their uh their website was still up so people could still log in and and you could actually trade bitcoin between users still and so this one guy had this brilliant idea it was really brilliant he made a he made another exchange he called it bitcoinbuilder.com and so he was like okay if you send me your coins on mount gox i'll credit you on my website and you can exchange your mount gox coins for real bitcoin for people who want to deposit and buy. So it's a way for basically people to speculate on whether they thought Mt. Gox would come online again or not, which I actually partook in and lost really? some money yeah. I know some people lost a lot of money doing that, though. So, yeah, it was it was dumb of me. But So, yeah, basically I went on and bought. I, took, I sent Bitcoin to this guy, BitcoinBuilder.com, and I bought. So if, if I had sent one Bitcoin in there or something, I could buy, like, four Gox coins, right? Because... Mm. Everybody's, but so if Mt. Gox just was like, okay, everything's fine, bam, I would have had four Bitcoin, right. basically, that I could have withdrawn. But, of course, that's not what happened. They went down. Damn. And one day their website went down, and, and it came out later that they were hacked. And then there was another exchange implicated that went down a couple years later called BTC-E. They're a Russian exchange. And they, um, the FBI took them down somehow. I don't know. But really? they said they were implicated, actually, in the Mt. Gox uh, hack. So I think Mount Gox, that, that's still on, like the people who have like a bankruptcy claims against Mount Gox because bank, they filed bankruptcy. So anybody who had coins there could maybe get something back through the bankruptcy process. It's still ongoing as far as I know. What happened to all those coins that got stolen? Uh, they went out and got laundered through fair, in various places. I think BTC E was involved in that somehow. But again, you can kind of track them. Like theoretically, you can track them. But um, I'm not sure if, since it's all under investigation, I'm not sure if any of that has been made public. What happened to them? Oh, yeah, because you would think it would all be trackable, right? You'd be able to fight, figure out where everything went. Right, but I don't Even know. I'm sure there are people. I'm sure there are people that have gone down that rabbit hole. I haven't particularly. But that that brings me to a sort of another point, though. Um, there's a saying in crypto. Uh, since we're talking about exchanges and how to buy it. There's a lot of exchanges now in the U.S. Um, it's not like the old days, though, where you just send money and you get Bitcoin back. Like It's pretty heavily regulated now, um, mm. which has its good things and its bad things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd say mostly bad. But, uh, you know, they have to verify who you are, uh, like follow all the sort of anti-money laundering, know-your-customer laws. The big ones are Coinbase and Gemini. Of those two, I kind of like Gemini better. Um Gemini, Gemini, that's the Winklevoss. Yes. Winklevoss yes. twins. Winklevoss twins. The Gemini twins, right? Okay. That's their exchange that they built. And um, but the thing is, when you hold, when a lot of people, and I know a lot of people who've been in Bitcoin for a long time, they still do this. They leave their coins on the exchange, like in the exchange wallet. And essentially what you're doing then is you're, 
you're you're holding your coins in somebody else's ledger, just like you have it in a bank. Like mm-hmm. like uh, like if you have your money in your bank, uh, if that bank becomes insolvent or something, uh, there's FDIC insurance, which is another rabbit hole <laughs> to insure you. But essentially, that money's gone if somebody's you know, if the bank becomes insolvent. So if these exchanges, so when Mount Gox became insolvent and went under and those coins got, I mean, it was game over for, I know people that lost hundreds of Bitcoins on Mount Gox. And uh, so it was, it's just, it's just gone, man. You know, it's the wild west, you know? Yeah. And so whenever you're sending them to these exchanges, you're, you're, you're taking your Bitcoin, which is kept track of on the Bitcoin blockchain so that means you have an account balance on the Bitcoin blockchain ledger. You know, that's, that's the one that I told you that's shared across yep. all the computers and everything. Um, there's, short of the entire internet shutting down, there's nothing that can really take, or, or you losing your access to those by losing, your, like not taking care of your security well enough or losing your, your, you know, your hard drive dies and you didn't have backups. Short of that, there's nobody can take that money from you, that those, those, those Bitcoin from you. Mm-hmm. Nobody can go and seize them uh, easily unless they physically take your computer and force you to s- send them out, you know. Um, but once you put them on a th- third-party exchange, it's just an entry on their bank ledger. They, don't, they, they control the actual asset, the Bitcoin. You don't control it anymore. So if they go under, if they get hacked or whatever... Your stuff's all at risk of that. And they're pretty big, you know, a lot of these exchanges, they're pretty big honeypots, you know. Mm-hmm. Hackers are always trying to get into oh, these yeah. exchange wallets. You know? Right. They've gotten very good at, the exchanges have gotten very good at um, securing the coins. Like, How the hell do you pay taxes on your Bitcoin? If it's so volatile, the price goes up and down. Well. What if you would have bought it at like $10,000 and by the, in December it's the worth the 30 The way handles it is that if you, um, it's just like any other investment. So, the same thing with stocks. Like you can hold a stock and go up to a hundred and then back down to what you bought it for. You mm. know, it's uh they, they count it whenever you convert it back to us dollars. So that's the taxable event is when you convert. Oh, it back okay. To US dollars. Yeah. So you can hold Bitcoin, you can buy it at a hundred dollars and then it goes up to 1300 and then it goes back down to 200. And as long as you didn't sell at any point in there, mm-hmm. there's no taxable event. Okay. So, but there's it, the and the crypto universe and uh, taxation is a is a nightmare, frankly. I bet. Um, yeah, you'd have to get like a specialized uh, accountant if you're doing anything crazy with crypto mm-hmm. to to deal with that. But if you're just you know buying the coins and holding them, mm-hmm. stuff like that, it's pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. Just like buying anything else and holding it. Okay. So, what kind of what kind of stuff are you doing in Atlanta? What kind of you do a lot of conferences and stuff. Um, we do our normal Bitcoin meetup. Okay. Uh, we, of course, we haven't done. We did our first one since COVID hit last month. But basically, we just kind of are top topical. We we do something. We'll do like I think we're having on next week. Um, we're gonna talk about Fedcoin, which mm. is uh, the Federal Reserve is actually gonna be rolling out some uh, um, interesting stuff next year, probably. That's kind of similar to its own version of Bitcoin. Interesting. If, yeah, there's this law that, that got passed in March. Um, anyhow, we're going to talk about that. Uh, but usually it's something topical. We get together at this uh, co-working space at an executive airport uh, in Atlanta called Peachtree Cab Airport. 
at the Globe Hub, and we usually have like barbecue and and stuff, and just it's just more of like a social uh, club of people mm-hmm. who are interested in in Bitcoin and crypto. So that's what we do there in Atlanta. So it's BitcoinAtlanta.org. Okay. And uh, I do have a crypto consulting company called ClarkCrypto.com. Okay. What's so it called? Clark Crypto. My last name Clark, is Clark. Yeah. C-L-A-R-K? K-E. Actually, but if you type oh, either... Oh, there's an E. Yeah, if you type either one in, you, okay. can, uh, you, can, you can get there. Crypto Clark? Or Clark, Clip, Clark I have that one crypto. too. <laughs> you have both just in case they type it wrong. <laughs> yeah. All right, perfect. So it's ClarkCrypto.com. So, you know... I'll do consulting for as anything as simple as, hey, can you help me buy uh, some Bitcoin or help me navigate these exchanges or whatever, um, all the way up to like helping people. You know, I have I, I know a lot of people in the business, so if I don't know the answer to your question, I can point you in the right direction. So legal consulting for like if you want to launch like a token or something, we can help you with the tokenomics and the legal aspects of that of doing a launch and. Uh, securing your coins is a big thing I like to talk to people about because with great freedom, because you basically, you know, Barack Obama <laughs> actually gave us like the best line for Bitcoin. He said, uh, if the, if the cryptography can't be broken, it's just like people running around with Swiss bank accounts in their pockets, which is what hmm. basically like what having a Bitcoin wallet is basically. Is like that was that was that's exactly right. That's exactly what it is. So, um, but you have to be able to secure them properly. Uh, you don't want you just want to do some best practices type of things. Uh, so help people with that. Uh, I also have a friend of mine who does uh, wallet recovery. You know, if you screw something up and you think you've lost your bitcoins, he can help you recover them. Um, but yeah, I um. But there's a lot of great products coming out that are making it easier and easier to to store your coins mm-hmm. effectively. This company, Edge, they're, uh, they don't pay me or anything. I just am a big fan of them. They have a wallet. They're out of California, the Edge wallet. And uh, I've known their founder since 2014. And uh, they they kind of try and straddle that line of, you know, we want your grandma to be able to use this, but we also want to back it up and make it secure so you can... And I and I, so I've done it where I've got a new phone or something, and I just go on and install the app, enter my username and password, and bam, it's all repopulated oh, from cool. their backups. But they don't actually keep anything on their servers. So they even if so, even if they got raided or something, um, all the all the data they have, or if they got hacked, mm-hmm. all the data they have on their wallets is all encrypted on your device. Okay. So if if you forget your username and password, it's car- compartmentalized. Yeah. So so they never get any raw data on their end, but yeah, if you remember your username, your username and password, you can restore it on any device, stuff like that. Cool. Um, so you can also buy cryptocurrency through their wallet too. Oh really? Um, yeah, okay. They have a they have a service now. They just started a year or two ago. So. Um, Sweet. I gotta get on that. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'll set you up with some. I'll send you with some after this. Hell yeah, let's do it, man. <laughs> but that's uh, so that's what I'm up to, and um, I don't know. I feel like <laughs> I feel like we jumped around a lot. I hope somebody you guys got something out of it. Yeah, well, I definitely did. I definitely learned a lot. It's a super fascinating subject, and there's tons, like you said, tons of rabbit holes you can you can get lost down. Right, we should do it again. Um, yeah, we I'll will try and do like a 
more linear <laughs> yeah progression through through everything but sure. yeah the moral of the story is um uh, the takeaways, uh, inflation is a giant hidden tax on the world. Uh, the governments of all, of all the world governments use against their populace to basically, we don't even need a tax system anymore. They could just, they could just print the money and through inflation do everything they wanted uh, at this point. Someday it'll fall apart, but until it does, it's God a great damn, game Can you imagine them. that day? Um, I don't want to, but I mean, they, they don't want, I mean, they, they want to regulate it is they're very smart and they've got a lot of, I mean, they've got a lot of, uh, levers they can pull to keep things going. Mm. But, um, Bitcoin is like gold and silver, a hedge against inflation, which inflation is, you know, they say like death and taxes. Well, these days death and inflation are like, Mm. (laughs) are are sure, sure thing. So because of the limited supply of Bitcoin, I think it's going to be a a sink for a lot of U.S. dollars that are printed out of thin air. And um, I'm, you know, I'm a big anti you know anti anti war on drugs. I'm a big anti war guy though too. And so, really, the this whole notion of like global war that we've that we've like World War One, World War Two. And then this kind of whatever we have now, which is just like wars going on all the time, you know, in the Middle East or whatever, mm-hmm. um, they all couldn't be funded without this fiat money system where they can tax everybody stealthily, you know, uh, through this hidden tax of inflation where gradually your savings are eroded and, you're, and, and income never keeps up with it. Like I was talking to the Uber driver last night, your income, you know, he there's all this new money in the economy and yeah. And, but he gets paid the same. He's not making, you know, Uber still pays him the same rates pretty much, mm-hmm. maybe even less. Right. Uh, because you know, there's so many people driving Uber now unemployment and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So, um, the wages never quite keep up with inflation. So even if like inflation is really like 4% a year, every year, let's just say like that's, that's the inflation rate. Well, most employers give like 3%, right? But if you magnify that out over 40 years, right? Where's that money go? That's a 40% reduction in your salary. Like, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Right. There's a 1% difference there. So inflation's 4%, but your salary only goes up 3%. So it's a 1%. If you take that over a 40-year career, that means that if you're working kind of the same job for 40 years, which a lot of people do, Mm -hmm. um, on that 40th year when you retire, you're, as far as like keeping up with your expenses, you're 40 you're 40% less well off than when you started. God damn. So that's dark. Yeah. But that's why everybody, that's why all household, you know, used to be in the fifties and sixties. One dude could make money for his whole family and, and, uh, and the wife could stay home with the kids or whatever. Mm -hmm. But now everybody's, you know, two, two, two income family. Mm -hmm. You have to have like a two income family to keep Mm -hmm. up most. Yeah. So, Sound money uh, and Bitcoin are the answer to that. You know, end the wars. If you want to end war and and increase the living standard of more people in the world, buy Bitcoin. <laughs> It'll solve your problems. Awesome, man. Well, thanks for coming down and doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank and, you. And uh, I hope you guys enjoyed. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.